Hey, good evening, everybody. It is Atwood Unleashed 109, co-hosted with Stephen Knight. We're going to be following up with more Sound of Freedom stuff. We've got some great guests coming on tonight. And a huge thank you to everyone who tuned into the reality TV show me and Jen were on earlier this week and supported and voted for us, even though we got kicked off <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> it was just as well, because Jen was exhausted. Many of you have sent in love and well wishes for Jen. Our due date for our birth, uh, our kid is um, August 26. But little Ziggy grew so big, we've been in and out of hospital. We're in hospital again today. And um, he could come anytime. What Jen's waters could break anytime now. So thanks for all the well wishes and love and support for Jen. All right, so first guest, we've got one of our guys who came on the show, I think it was about two years ago now. Absolute phenomenal guest, Nick McKinley. He's going to be discussing the sound of freedom and how it's helping to fight to eradicate human transportation. He's an entrepreneur, former military special ops, ex-CIA, who founded and led two multi-million dollar tech companies, a pioneer in visioning data as a service solutions to disrupting illicit commodity markets. He's passionate about solving society's most pressing issues through cost-effective technical solutions. He's the founder of Deliver Fund, the only donor-funded solution to human transportation that delivers proprietary data and tech to law enforcement, allowing them to take down human transporters effectively. Along with Deliver Fund, he founded a venture capital-backed software company and has a tech leadership consulting practice. Oh, we've got a harrowing, um, oh my goodness, 7 to 7.30. Obviously graphic uh, content warning on this one. Zaina Imran who's trying to piece together the events that happened inside a greater Manchester jail cell in 2021. The Independent posted a news story chronicling her story and how she's still campaigning for the missing video footage from the jail cell. Something really, how can I phrase this, atrocious happened in the jail cell. I think you know the nature of it, what I'm implying here. While she was in custody, this happened. So we're going to be asking what she remembers of that night and how she's aiming to get justice. And then Stephen is handling guest number three. Yeah, I'll, from 7.30 to 8.30, I'll be speaking to well-traveled security specialist and investigative reporter Nathan Paul Southern. Uh, he'll join us for the last hour. Uh, Nathan is a non-traditional security specialist investigating uh, conflict, human transporting, illicit flows, drug wars, and terror. Uh, the focus of tonight's discussion will be on the rise of pig butchering scams and the thousands that get drawn in by the scams as well as the people who are prison, imprisoned in the call centres and forced to work against their will. Uh, will. It's really harrowing stuff. Yeah, so for the next... We've got until 8.30 tonight. It's going to be really um, graphic subjects that we're covering. So again, you know disclaimer for the viewers there um if you are sensitive towards these subjects you might want to do something more 
lightweight to watch this stuff. All right, and it looks like we've got Nick ready to come in already, um, Steve. So I think I should just bring him in. Sounds good to me. Enjoy. Have a good conversation. All right. Cheers, Stephen. Thank you. See you later. Cheers. Bye. Hey, Nick. Always a great pleasure to see you. A huge thanks for coming on. Can you just tell the little the viewers a little bit about you first, please? Sure. Thanks for having me on, Sean. Um, again, actually, uh, the last time we did this was super fun, so I'm, I'm happy to do it again. Uh, yeah, Nick McKinley, I'm the founder and CEO of Deliver Fund. I'm a former uh, military special operator, former CIA operative, and now uh, on top of some other things that I do in the tech entrepreneur space, I run the largest counter human trafficking company on the planet called Deliver Fund. And Nick, you know, you, you told us previously about your story and how you came on this path. Could you just give a summary of that before we get to Sound of Freedom? Yeah, so when I was working at the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, I was involved in a case overseas where we had what I like to call uh, smoking gun intel on the modern uh, on uh, some modern slavery and. What we found in doing that work uh, and both working with uh, our, our British counterparts and working with uh, the other Five Eyes countries, we very quickly learned that nobody really had the ball on this issue. It was a it was an issue that everybody cared about, but there was there was really no centralized uh, hub for fighting it in the way that there was terrorism right so we decided that what we needed to do was was really take our skills and and the technology and methodologies that we'd learned in the fight against terrorism and start applying those to the fight against human trafficking and the original thesis of the company was looking at the overseas issue of human trafficking but well, let's go with let's go with transportation Oh, uh, yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, in, in modern slavery. So within within that, we really started looking at the overseas issue. And what we found was that the predominant market for modern slavery within Westernized societies was actually in those Western countries. It wasn't something that was happening in Thailand and Cambodia at the same scale it was happening in the United States of America. So we pivoted the company to start focusing on that issue specifically. Okay, and I'm, I'm hearing me echo, um, Nick. Are the viewers hearing me echo as well? What, what's, um, what receiving device are you using, Nick, for your audio? Uh, just the uh, just the speakers, but I can grab uh, some uh, headphones real quick if that uh, that'll work. Oh, that'd be you. great. Thank you. Yeah, let's try okay. that. Cheers. Cheers. Let, I'm just going to check my settings as well. I've got echo cancellation on. Um, okay, is that better? Five thousand. Four thousand. Yep. All right, we're good. We're good. Right, we're Thank good. you for that. Thanks for that. Excellent. No worries. Yeah. All right. So th there was a story, Nick, you know, of something that you experienced yourself that made you go on this path. Do you want to tell us that story? The The story was in uh, Lashkargah, Afghanistan, and we had a uh, individual from the uh, 
local area. And I got to be obviously a little bit careful about what I say here because the, the CIA has only cleared me to, to tell certain aspects of it. But uh, we had somebody from the local area that we were working with and they had, again, what I like to call smoking gun intelligence on uh, a, a modern slaveholder really is what they were. And they were, they were selling children and nobody really cared what they, what, or that the, the slaveholder didn't care what they used the children for. He was just selling children to anybody who needed them. So what we figured out was that this slaveholder was selling children to a bomb maker. And we were interested in the bomb maker, but then it very quickly became a, a, a situation where we decided that, well, let's go ahead and pivot this intel so that we can send it to somebody who's dealing with the modern slavery issue, just like we were dealing with the counterterrorism issue. And we couldn't find anybody after a period of weeks. Right? And keep in mind, like this isn't we weren't civilians doing this. We were CIA operatives doing this. And we figured out that there was really no place to put this intel. And that's what made me really decide that I needed to, I need to do something about this. It was, it was the proverbial fork in the road. And so I left the central intelligence agency and started deliver fund specifically to address the issue. So you're saying that there are people out there that procure kids to test bombs they'll yes they're procuring children they're procuring adults they're 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 really gaining control of somebody through force fraud or coercion in and selling them for any use that somebody might want in the in the westernized countries that's pre, that's predominantly uh, commercial sex services in other countries i think you're going to talk about the the pig butchering issue uh, you've got you know, people locked in call centers in the South China Sea. You've got people who are enslaved on on fishing ships. Uh, you've got people making bricks in India. I mean, it, it's it's all types of 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 uses. And when you look at the modern slavery issue, it's all forced labor. The only question is, what kind of forced labor? Is it commercial sex forced labor? Is it forced physical labor is it forced essentially mental labor as in the pig butchering issue uh, is it forced uh, forced terrorism i mean we even have situations where you have uh, terrorist organizations who will grab the the daughter or son of a of, of a mother and then tell the mother that they're going to kill the daughter or son if they don't go blow themselves up We've, we've even seen that. So, so yeah, when we look at the modern slavery issue, it's all forced labor. So uh, the darkest side of this then is, is using people to test bombs. Is that as dark as it gets? I don't think that's as dark as it gets. We've seen what we were working in Ukraine before the war kicked off and we saw some, some pretty, uh, pretty terrible, uh, uh, modern slavery that was happening in that area. But we also, w when you look at the, the, the problem that everybody should be focused on is what is most relevant to them. So if you live in London, if you live in New York City, there's a completely different type of human trafficking that, or, pardon me, of, of modern slavery that your children are vulnerable to as opposed to what you'll experience in, say, India or Dubai. 
So, you know, I'm about to have a kid uh, here any day now. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, thanks. And, you know, perhaps that's why watching The Sound of Freedom affected me all the more just from the get-go where the dad is tricked by that lady, Gazelle, into leaving the kids. She says they're self-conscious around you. Can you come back at 7 o'clock? He comes back and he's pounding on the door and they've cleared out and he pounds on the next door and he pounds on the next door. Your heart breaks at that moment, and it, it, it just boggles the mind that people can do these things to kids that young. Because he even said, when he signed up for this, he thought kids meant 16, 17-year-olds. I watched him in an interview. I've watched several of his interviews recently, Tim Ballard. And he said when he was seeing videos of four-year-olds and five-year-olds, and in particular, there was a video of a five-year-old with an act being performed. And it looked at one point as if the kid's body was snapping in half. It's like my brain can't compute this. Um, what, what, you know, when did you watch it? And what was your gut reaction? I watched it a couple of weeks ago, and it makes you just want to get out there and do something about it. I mean, you're already out there doing stuff about it. It's like a call to action, isn't it? Well, so I haven't seen it uh, because that would be like you watching a uh, a movie about uh, a podcast host. Uh, this is something I live every single day oh. and my team lives every single day. So, you know, we don't really need to go watch movies about it. Um, and it's important to understand, though, that, um, you know, I've, I've seen clips and and obviously my inbox has been blown up about it. It's important to understand that we have moves out to my face and a true story or, you know, relatively close to a true story, but they're still movies. So when you have, you know, a, a story about, about modern slavery that's happening in Colombia, that's, that's not really applicable to you in the UK because it, again, it's, it's a completely different type of human trafficking. The predominance of human trafficking that happens in Westernized societies and especially in English speaking countries is children being recruited and groomed through social media. It's, it's predators contacting children on social media. And there's also a, a distinction between child exploitation and modern slavery. Unfortunately, most child exploitation is not done by, uh, you know, people who've kidnapped children. Now, that does happen, but it's 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 very rare. In fact, in the United States, you have uh, twice the chance of getting struck by lightning as you do a, a stranger abducting your child. Most child abductions happen by people that the child know and people that the child uh, trust. So that's that's more your human or more your your child exploitation side as opposed to modern slavery. And when we talk about the modern slavery piece, we're predominantly talking about between, say, 12 and 16, 17, you know, 18 year old, predominantly females, even though it does happen to, to boys as well. Not so much men. We're predominantly talking about that age of teenage, predominantly girls who are being recruited and groomed through the internet by, by predators. Now, those predators aren't as much looking to make videos of them as they are willing to, to rent their bodies out to customers by the hour. And it's horrendous. And these people who prey on those teenagers, 
sentences need to be really increased for them because the whole justice system is upside down. But at risk of extrapolating, something happened to two of our podcast guests. I think it was towards the end of last year. They're a couple, Kira and Lee Marvin, and they took their kid, their baby, to London to visit some family members. They're from Manchester, which is uh, two hours on the train north of London. And she was uh, outside a busy station, a busy train station. She turned around for just a few seconds. And when she turned back to the kid, and we put pictures up of the seat, the seats, this transporter had unbuckled the seats and was lifting the kid out of the seat. Now, her partner, Lee Marvin, is a big guy, six foot three, well-built guy. And out of nowhere, a second transporter just bumps into him, throws his arms up in the air and says, welcome to London, giving his accomplice time to disappear into the busy London traffic. I can't imagine how that story would have ended if she hadn't turned around, if they'd have got the kid. And unfortunately, that's the the reality of the the situation that we're we're dealing with. So how did how did that modern slaveholder? How did they? Uh, what what it what was it that they were trying to to procure the kid for? Could be, it could be adoption, uh, adoption. Uh, and, and selling adoptions is a is a big business. It could be for child exploitation. It could be to try to get money out of the parents later. It could be any number of things. Uh, but that's that's where you know the vigilance of parents is is a it's a strange dichotomy because you cannot as a parent, you cannot be vigilant all the time. I have, I have a couple of children myself and, and you, you just, you can't watch two at the same time, right. Or, or not turn around and not turn your back. Uh, but it's, it's extremely like that type of situation is actually pretty rare. Uh, and, and usually it's an organized crime issue around kidnap and ransom uh, trying to get money from people as opposed to actually trying to exploit the child it's it's more the child who is contacted by that that predator through the internet who starts talking to them and saying hey you know oh yeah you know the your dad isn't letting you wear the mini skirt to uh, to the shopping center because he's just trying to keep you from growing up and you're so beautiful. And here, let me send you, let me send you some gifts. And, and then it, that happens over a period of weeks to months. And, and what is a, an emotional manipulation? And then eventually they will ask the child to meet them somewhere. And, and you got to think about it from a business perspective, right? We can get really emotional and upset about, about these types of issues. But one of the things I like to say is that tears do nothing for the, for these victims. What helps them is cold calculating strategy and, 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 and fighting the problem at the scale it exists, not just one, one individual piece. Uh, I get asked why we at deliver fund don't go do you know, operations overseas and things like that. I got 30 combat deployments under my belt to some of the worst places in the world. Uh, I understand as much about kicking doors as anybody alive. 
we don't go do that work because it's not scalable. One person, I put a team on a plane, we go do it, we go do an operation, three months go by, voila, we're done, we helped one child. What if we can provide the data and intelligence to be able to, to work with all law enforcement officers simultaneously, and then they can go do the job. And by the way, that actually gets the human trafficker arrested and convicted. And so we currently work with over just here in the United States, over 600 law enforcement agencies simultaneously. That is way bigger impact and scale than anything that I could do or my team could do just by ourselves. So we really tend to look at that issue because if you have human, uh, if you have modern slaveholders that are, um, that are contacting children online and then Law enforcement is focusing on that issue. And then you have in your in your case of the friends that you had, you have a, a child who's actually abducted. Well, those law enforcement officers, there's only a few of them. So where do they spend their time? Well, they should probably be spending their time working that child abduction case as opposed to that modern slavery case. So what we try to do is eliminate that modern slaveholder so they can never talk to the child in the first place. So we can free up the law enforcement resources to be able to focus on the issues that are, are harder for them to get to the bottom of, which is the child abduction issues. All right, let me just do a quick recap for the viewers then. We're here with Nick McKinley. If you have watched The Sound of Freedom, which is a movie based on the true life story of Tim Ballard, Nick has experienced the similar things and has been on many operations and we're going to we're going to get to more of that we are having to weigh our words very carefully because when it comes to this subject matter algorithmic strangulation is in full effect youtube has artificial intelligence watching absolutely everything we say so we're saying human transporters and you know um, human transportation instead of the more obvious word the and for the P word we're saying adults who are attracted to kids. Now, one of the things Tim Ballard said when he watched those, because he was assigned from, I think it was counterterrorism over to watching the videos of what adults attracted to kids did to kids. Mm -hmm. And he said every time he watched a video, it put a, a hole in his head. It like scorched a hole in his head to the point where he now has over a thousand holes in his head from watching these movies. Now, you know, earlier on you said, you know, you, you've done multiple operations, you've had to come encounter these situations and these people. When you first start doing this, Nick, what are the effects on you psychologically? And viewers as well, because we are live, please put any questions for Nick in the chat, wherever you are watching this in the world, and we'll put them to him. Cheers. So what, what is being referred to is a term called vicarious trauma, and it's the human brain. When the human brain sees another human experience trauma, it's, it's very much the same as that, as you experiencing that trauma. Now it's, it's not the, it's not the exact same level, but when you, when you do it on, in aggregate, it ends up, it ends up essentially tricking your brain into thinking that it experienced the same trauma. Does that, does that make sense? Yes. So, uh, and that's a survival mechanism that 
God built into our brains. So, because if you watch somebody get eaten by a lion, then you say, oh, well, if I want my lineage to survive, I need to make sure I don't get eaten by a lion. And so, so you, you learn that survival trauma. The problem with, with the internet connected technologies is that now you can experience vicarious trauma at scale. Now I'm a, a little bit different and because I came from a special ops background in the military, right? Very, very highly selective. And then was an operative at the central intelligence agency where I believe Tim was an analyst. And the difference is that we are very specially selected for a cognitive ability to be able to handle that. So while the things that I've seen in fighting modern slavery are, are pretty, pretty terrible, nothing compared to what I saw in combat. Uh, uh, and that was significantly worse. So you just develop an ability to compartmentalize without it and you develop coping mechanisms. Uh, so I make sure that I keep my brain healthy by making sure I go out and do things I like. So I ski and I rock climb and I, uh, am getting back into skydiving. Uh, it's been, been a minute since, uh, since I did that. And I, I go do those things that I enjoy to, to essentially de-stress, but I also stay in shape. I watch my diet. I don't drink because I have head trauma from combat. So I, I, I don't really have the brain cells to lose. Uh, mm -hmm. So I, I do all of these different things to, to keep myself healthy. And I can say the same thing for my team and the analysts who work on my team, you know, former law enforcement detectives and former intelligence analysts for JSOC who, who have, have learned to do this over a period of decades. And when we started doing this work, it wasn't our first turn at the wheel. We'd been we'd been doing this stuff, you know, dealing with this type of traumatic uh, these types of traumatic situations since we were in our early 20s. So by the time we started doing this in 2014, it was it was just another target set to us. Uh, but you bring up a very important point about vicarious trauma. One of the things that we're working on the, on the technology side is making it so that law enforcement officers who are not specially selected her cognitive ability to be able to handle that kind of trauma. We have these incredibly brave law enforcement officers who know that by getting into this type of work, it's going to psychologically affect them. And it's probably going to affect their marriage and their personal relationships with friends and their relationship with their wife and their relationship with their parents. Like they know that because they've watched that happen to their friends. So, Think think about how brave they have to be to say, you know what, this I'm going to go and I'm going to fight this despite the fact that I know it's probably going to be detrimental to my health. So one of the technologies that we're working on and we're very close to finishing is the ability for computers to detect what currently law enforcement officers have to manually detect so that we can reduce the aggregate exposure to those law enforcement officers and to our industry partners so they can find those modern slaveholders better, faster, and cheaper. All right, so we've got a few questions come in. Uh, Sazabur, thanks for the question. You're being asked, is there a prevalence of this activity in Hollywood? I don't think there's a bigger prevalence of this activity in Hollywood than there is in society in general. I think there's a bigger spotlight on this activity in Hollywood because we all tend to look that direction. So the question is, is there more of it happening or is it just that it's easier to see? And from what we've seen in our data, and we have the largest counter human trafficking database on the planet, 
Uh, we're talking billions of points of interest on the modern slave issue as it's happening in real time. Uh, we don't see we, we don't see bigger hotspots in you know Hollywood, California than we see really anywhere else. I just think that within the public's mind, it's a bigger issue there because there's more of a focus on it. Because one of the themes of the Sound of Freedom was that America was the biggest consumer of the videos and also it was a top target destination for the kids is that because america is one of the wealthiest countries in the world that so it's it's like the target market for all things like drugs and everything else yes that that is that is why that is happening and that is true that america is the yeah, dollar for dollar it's the largest modern slavery economy uh on in the world it's also when we talk about the child exploitation piece and human trafficking and child exploitation are two different things or modern slavery and child exploitation are two separate things. So we do, um, but, but there's a lot of overlap between the two. And when we talk on the child commercial sexual exploitation piece, the United States of America is the biggest consumer by, uh, by economies of scale, actually, unfortunately. Which is the next largest uh, country that kids are getting transported to? So that's a great question. And we don't really know. Uh, we think it's Germany, uh, but it also, uh, uh, the UK has a, has a very big problem, as does Australia. So it's, it, it, it's really hard to measure. And that's one of the problems with the statistics around this issue it's very hard to get these predators to take surveys about their business. <laughs> so this is a this is an underground economy that happens, you know, primarily below the waterline where people can't see it. So if you if you think about it in the terms of thinking about narcotics or weapons proliferation, when we say, well, we we have a rough idea of how big those economies are, the reality is is we actually have no idea. Everybody does studies in a different way and they all reach different numbers. And so when we talk about, you know, this, this slavery economy, it's currently being touted as a $150 billion industry. I have a really hard time believing that when I first started doing this work in 2013, it was, it was being called a $32 billion industry. So how did it get that big that fast? Well, the reality is it, is it didn't, but it doesn't matter. Because if the fact that there's any industry, the fact that there's any economy, the fact that we even have to have this conversation, that's the problem. And that's where we need to be focused in getting everybody involved in this fight. Next question is from Papa Chubby. How can we join the fight against this problem? <laughs> Ties right in what you just said. That that's a, uh, that's a great question I get a lot. Uh, the first would be to think about about the slavery economy just like any other economy and 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 business these predators have to contact their prey online so if you work in social media or you work for an online platform or a company that that's in the trust and safety business what are you doing to counter this and if you're not doing anything reach out we can, we can help you figure that out if you're in banking, what are you doing to keep the predators out of, of your, your bank? If you accept payments, if you are Uber, if you are Airbnb, uh, who we work with, who does a phenomenal job, if you're Marriott, if you're any company 
that provides services to people as they travel, especially for business, chances are human traffickers are using your platform. So that would be the first thing is start there. The second thing, uh, yes, the, your human transporters. Uh, the second thing I would say is if you're a parent, be a good parent. That, that right there is the best thing that you can do to keep your children safe from predators. And, and that that's all forms of predators. Just be a good parent. Uh, and we've got some resources on our on our website at deliverfund.org where you can actually see what you can do. Then the next would be uh, if you have some disposable income uh, and you have a philanthropy budget, please donate to the organizations that are doing this kind of work. Obviously, I'm biased towards us at Deliver Fund, but there are plenty of good organizations, maybe even in your local community, that are providing services to victims, uh, that are helping the law enforcement officers who are doing this work. Uh, and then really the last piece is, uh, because it's, it's not doing as much, but it's very important, and that's to consistently share information from accounts because Sean, you are the one who brought it up that the, uh, I think you called it the, the algorithmic strangulation, uh, which is an absolutely phenomenal term. I'm going to steal that, uh, from you. That's the best term I've heard for it. Uh, it, it, it really reduces the, uh, the spread of information and the spread of facts. Unfortunately, it seems that the conspiracies spread like wildfire but the real information has a very hard time getting it out there. So, so follow, uh, you know, accounts like Sean's where you're getting this kind of information and then distribute it to your friends and family so that we can make sure everybody is educated about the problem. And that's essentially the cycle on how you can get involved and you can get involved starting anywhere in that cycle and just follow the loop around. Yeah, we had a discussion with Nick about algorithmic strangulation before he came on, and he did a video recently on a subject we have covered and we got a strike for. Um, but what he said was, because of the phraseology used in that video, it, it barely got any traction. But it's even worse than that. So you've got artificial intelligence looking at all the language we're using right now, for example, restricting mm -hmm. the video. But if you agitate the artificial intelligence to a degree there's a threshold if you cross over you can wake up and your platform is gone so that is why we have to weigh our words very carefully to um get these important messages out there we have gone through that twice already on this channel and i don't want to go through it again the other thing is you know nick you mentioned parents having responsibility for their kids I agree with that entirely but having about to have a kid a baby you know i'm thinking ahead there's going to be times when I've got to go and do things and perhaps, you know, me and my partner are going to go out and leave the kid with a babysitter or mm. we're going to leave it with uh, family members, for example. Two things here I want to highlight then. So you said it's mostly people you know who do these things. Say, you know, you leave it with a trusted family member, but then some other family members come over who you've not vetted and, you, you, you know, who could access the kid and you wouldn't even know. And the other thing is if you have, like, a babysitter should you have like cameras in the house watching your kid at all times in the hope that that will prevent anything from happening i think so i'm a big believer that if you are a parent 
you should do whatever you feel comfortable doing, making sure that your child is protected. And we do need to understand that children have no right to privacy. And thank God, because if my parents had not intervened in my in my life, I mean, I was a uh, I was an orphan who was then adopted uh, later in life uh, by a but I was, I was still a toddler by a wonderful family. So statistically, what are the chances that I was going to have some problems later in life? And I did. And my parents, they they got involved. And they made sure that those issues did not turn into lifelong problems. They didn't say, oh, well, we're just going to let Nick be Nick. No, they got involved. And I think that that is that's the biggest thing that parents can do. So if, if what you feel comfortable doing is putting cameras in your house, you should do that. If what you feel comfortable doing is making sure that your uh, your nanny has her location services on on her phone, that you can track her every time she's with your child, then then you should do that. Uh, you right? It, it, the child is your responsibility. So you should do everything in your power to, uh, to feel comfortable with the level of safety that you're providing to your child. So the next question ties into another theme that was in the sound of freedom. He's expressly stated that he was chosen, moved over from terrorism to going after the transporters because mm -hmm. he was a man of faith and they knew that when he was watching these videos the trauma would be cushioned by his faith so one of the viewers here carolyn is asking if you are a man of faith like tim ballard and how on earth do you cope and have a life dealing with these situations that's a, a great question. Yes, uh, I believe Tim is a, a Mormon, if I am correct. I don't know that for sure. Uh, but me personally, I'm a strong Bible-believing Christian. And uh, I wasn't always that way. Uh, there were some uh, some moments in, in combat that that caused me to, to reevaluate my uh, existential beliefs. But uh, that very much is, is helpful because I believe that if you are doing something that God is calling you to do, God is not going to call you to do it to your detriment. Uh, and he, he actually says in the Bible that, that he will work all things for your good. So if God has called me to fight modern slavery, he will protect me to make sure that I do not have a, a significant detriment to my life by doing that. I think it's only when we get outside of that will and we get off the path, so to speak, that we end up with severe consequences. I think you've piqued the viewer's interest now, Nick. Are you able to elaborate on the moment that gave you the existential crisis? <laughs> I, w I wish it was just one moment. Uh, there were, let me see, I was in three different helicopter crashes. I was in... Uh, a a military freefall uh, uh, accident, uh, which actually gave me some pretty significant traumatic brain injury. Uh, multiple times when I should have died but didn't, uh, and and it you know the first time that those things happen, the first it, you know your life does not flash before your eyes. You just you just have a sudden realization like oh this is it, and and believe it or not you're relatively calm about it, uh, especially when you've been through that that much training. But it, it after a while, I think it was probably the like eighth or ninth deployment where I started really wondering how many times I was going to be able to roll these dice without without suffering some consequences. And then and, and I wasn't even 30 years old yet. So 
then you start having some very difficult conversations with yourself, which is, well, when I die, what does that mean? Am I just, am I just done? Or am I going to go somewhere or, you know, and so I, I started doing a lot of research and, uh, landed, uh, I'm a big math and science and physics guy. And I, I think physics, uh, points to the existence of God. And so I, um, started, started wrestling with that issue. And then it, it really took me a couple of years. Cause I was one of those people who thought that, uh, you know, he, I was, I was too smart to believe in God. Right. Smart people don't believe in, you know, some mythical mm -hmm. person in the sky. I mean, and, and that, that's, that was the way I was looking at it, which obviously was a, it was a very much an oversimplification of, of the faith issue. And so I was on deployments reading about, uh, reading about, uh, what, what one had to decide whether or not God did exist. And if God does exist, which God, right? Cause there's so many of them in, in the, uh, you know, in, in man's mind, so wh which one is the real one and, and had to go through that process. And, and so it wasn't a one specific issue. It was actually after the issues, I was on a plane ride back to, uh, back to Iraq. And I was in one of the, I was in Kirkuk, Iraq, which is kind of the, the pivot point of the war in, in Iraq, one of the most dangerous places on the, on, on, on the earth at the time. And we were doing some, some very sporty operations and I, I was on the plane starting thinking about these things. Like you don't have, for lack of a better term, come to Jesus moments in combat because you're focused on surviving. You're focused, you're focused on making sure it's them and not you. You don't really have those situations then. It's after the fact when things have calmed down and you've had an ability to, to kind of start processing things. And so I was thinking about, OK, I'm getting ready to go back. And um, because of a set of circumstances with a loss of, of a teammate, uh, I had to go back sooner than we had thought. And we had just lost somebody from the team who was uh, actually my assistant team leader a little bit before. Uh, he had transitioned over to Afghanistan and got blown up. And so I started having those conversations and, uh, ultimately I landed on, uh, obviously the God of the Bible and, and Christianity. Nick, out of all of those situations, which was the one that brought you closest to death? Uh oh, um, the closest was, uh, I was in. It was in Afghanistan and we were getting ready to turn down this road. We were on our, on our way to, um, on our way to a place to do a thing. And we were in, uh, um, a very low profile setup. So we, we were trying to just look like we were part of the local population and we were getting ready to turn down this, this, this kind of not really an alleyway, but not really a road, kind of a combination in between as, as you, you tend to have in Afghanistan. And, and right as soon as we started to turn and the nose of, of the vehicle was actually into the turn. And I just, something was weird. I think back on it now and I, I realized what it was, but something was weird. And I just had this gut feeling. And I said, and I told the guy driving one of my teammates, I said, stop, uh, uh, turn left, go straight. And so when, when you're in those types of situations, nobody questions you in the moment. If you, if you make a call, anybody on the team can make a call like that. And then you just automatically execute, deal with it later. And 
about three seconds later, a massive VBID, uh, so vehicle-borne in, uh, improvised explosive device, went off um, so big that it ended up uh, causing you know catastrophic damage to buildings around it. We for sure would have died. There was no we would have gotten lucky um that that wouldn't have happened we for sure would have died and and by you know i'll i'll attribute it to some some divine intervention uh we just knew we shouldn't go down that road um and that was that was the one where i would say it was the closest call um the other things other situations i was in helicopter crashes or whatnot when you look at it it was understandable why nothing happened because say the engineering of the helicopter that was designed to crash and and that you know rounds that end up missing you or or whatever um but but that was the one where it was literally seconds seconds away from us blowing up and there was obviously somebody watching uh and somebody initiating that bomb and the, obviously the reason they initiated it was because we had already turned. So they knew, and they've got markers, uh, these bad guys do. So they know that when you hit a certain marker, that's when they need to initiate the bomb in order to get it to blow up at the right time that it gets you. So we had already started to turn. They obviously thought they had us and then we turned out and yeah, didn't, didn't, uh, didn't die. So how do you process that for the rest of that day? Do you rethink your occupation? Do you go into shock? You, uh, you don't, you, you just continue mission. You don't, you don't think about that. And at that point, that was probably my, I mean, I was in the twenties of deployments at that point. So I'd been to, I'd been, uh, I'd been to this location twice. Uh, so other things like that had happened, but nothing where it was that close. Uh, and you don't really, uh, you don't process it in the moment because you've got a job to do and getting distracted by the past, because if it, if it happened a second ago, it's in the past, getting distracted by the past is actually going to get you or somebody else killed. And in that line of work, you're not so much afraid of yourself dying. You're afraid that you might make a mistake that leads to somebody else's death. And then you have to live with that. And that that's a very, very difficult thing that I've watched a number of friends have to live through. So you, you want to keep your mind right and stay on, stay on mission so that you can be there for your buddies to your right and left. In the crash situations then, I imagine there's nothing you can do except for brace, get into a certain position, or yeah. is it is is it all over so fast that? No, no, that's actually the the hard part about helicopter crashes is you've got some time to think about it. Uh, oh wow! And so, or, or the same thing with 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 free fall accidents. You know, I had a parachute that didn't open uh, on a, a free fall what? training jump, and and you're like, oh well, I mean, you're hurtling towards the ground at you know 120, 130 miles an hour, and you're trying to think about, okay, well, how do I solve this problem? And at least then you have emergency procedures and you're dealing with a problem, getting your reserve shoot out and things like that. But uh, in the helicopter, you're not flying, you know, as special operators, we don't sit in seats. We're just floor loaded, which means we're just tethered into the helicopter and just sitting on the floor in the back, um, usually with our legs hanging out. And so I remember the first time it happened, I, I started thinking to myself, okay, we're going to, cr we're going to crash. Hopefully this pilot can land on the belly because uh, MH60s are made to land 
uh, to, for their landing gear essentially to collapse and help to, to cushion the crash. Uh, I'd had a couple of friends who died uh, about six months after I joined the pararescue teams. Uh, they ended up dying in, hel in helicopter crashes. So I figured that, but I also knew people who had lived uh, as other people on my team had. So I, I was trying to make this decision about whether or not I should be on my stomach or on my back when the helicopter crashed. I knew I didn't want to be sitting up because I didn't want to collapse my spine. So I, I, I rolled onto my stomach and then I was like, oh no, it'd probably be better for me to be on my back. So I flipped onto my back and then back onto my stomach. And then I, and then for some reason I decided again to flip onto my back. And so on, as I was turning the helicopter crashed and I actually ended up being on my side when the helicopter crashed. So, uh, yeah, it was, um, that's the thing about helicopter crashes is they're not and aircraft crashes. They're not sudden. You you're falling out of the sky, and as you are falling out of the sky, you have time to think about uh, about what you're going to do about it. Why was it falling out of the sky in the first place? Uh, there was a a set of circumstances that I'm sure the military would not be happy about me getting into um, that caused the helicopter um, to to lose its its flight capability. Uh, helicopters are not like airplanes; uh, they're kind of anomalies in the fact that they fly in the first place. So you have to, when, when the, the power required for a helicopter exceeds the power available, they have the flight characteristics of a safe. So they just literally just fall out of the sky. Uh, and uh, helicopter pilots can do a thing called auto rotation if they have uh, enough altitude. In our case, we were flying pretty low to the ground because we were try to trying to avoid enemy fire. And so they didn't have enough, uh, enough altitude to auto rotate. Uh, fortunately we had some pretty good forward airspeed and they were able just to, to set it down on the deck and it ripped all kinds of stuff off the outside of the helicopter, but everybody inside was fine. So you were on your side. What happened next as it landed? So it, it landed, we all got obviously, um, uh, pretty banged up and, then it's just a matter of like, oh, okay, I'm alive. Uh, okay, well, what about what about my teammate? Is he alive? Okay, yes. All right. Well, now let's go look at the air crew. Uh, are they alive? Yes. And then everybody just walked away, and we you don't know if the helicopter is going to blow up or something. So we all we all got out of there. Um, made sure everybody got out of the helicopter. We got a couple hundred yards away, and then we all just stood there in a group staring at the thing, like, wow, what what just happened? Uh, versus another one that I was a party to where I was not in the helicopter. I was fast roping out of the helicopter and all of a sudden something, and I'd, I'd fast roped hundreds of times at this point. And all of a sudden something was weird and the rope was weird and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And I hit the ground a whole lot harder than I normally did. And the rope got ripped from my hands and I watched the helicopter crash into a, into a canal, uh, about, you know, probably 50 yards away from me. And so that one, uh, I actually wasn't in the helicopter. I was sliding, sliding down a rope as it, uh, uh as the helicopter was, uh, was crashing. So during these life and death moments, then is there a certain, like, do you, do you think of your wife and kids or what, what, what does it something appear in your head? Anything appear in your head? Uh, no, at the time I was single. And so uh, an important thing to understand is that when you're in military special ops, as, as an example, and, and somewhat at my unit at the CIA, 
it's also important to distill the myth that the central intelligence agency is all a bunch of Jason Bournes. Um, I try to tell people I'm a whole lot more like Forrest Gump than, than Jason Bourne, but there, there are, there are only two units at the CIA where we have people who are trained fighters, trained shooters, and they carry guns in anger against the enemies of the, of the United States. And I got the good fortune of being in one of those units as a, as an, as an operative. And so when you're in those units, all anybody ever talks about is the last person who died. And when you are in training in military special ops, and it doesn't matter what branch or, or what special operations career field, and uh, in, in really in any country, all you ever hear about and study is people dying. And this person did this operation and were posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor or um, you know, the, the equivalent, uh, in, in the UK, it's, that's all you ever hear about. So, and again, two of my best friends, uh, were very, very close, uh, pararescuemen. We went through, through school together. One was in one helicopter, one was in the other helicopter and the two helicopters crashed. And, and that was six months out of PJ school. And there had already been three other pararescuemen who died by the time they had died. So all you're constantly dealing with is people dying in what is you know, some of the most dangerous occupations in the world. So you just assume your number is going to come up. And I didn't think I would make it to 30. And then I made it to 30 and I thought there's no way I'm going to make it to 40. And then I made it to 40 and I figured, well, I, I better start getting my life together. Oh God, this is mind blowing. So as you're losing colleagues, then mm -hmm. is it a case of, there's like a law of diminishing returns in terms of emotional reaction each time it yes. happens until you're desensitized. Yes, uh, unfortunately. And that's something that I've really had to work hard to overcome and kind of get myself back. Because when you are in, when you're a special operator or you're in my, my unit at, that I was in at the Central Intelligence Agency, you are programmed, for lack of a better term, to perform. And they pour millions of dollars into making you perform. And so when you're in those environments and then you're surrounded by people who are, you're trying to be better than, uh, it's kind of like when you look at some people are unicorns and herds of donkeys, and some people are unicorns and herds of racehorses. And some people are unicorns in herds of unicorns. And the special ops community is very much that. It is, it's the best and brightest the military has to offer. People who are specially selected, beating the odds of 90% attrition and not getting hurt, which you obviously can't really control, uh, and not just having a bad day. So you've got a bunch of people who are not only not only beating the odds, but are also just getting lucky. You put that many people uh, with that kind of um, that kind of uh, strenuous selection in one group, and good things are going to happen. The problem, though, is that you learn to tamper uh, your emotions to the point that you no longer really have them. So, if you have a friend who dies on a target. You can't cry about it. You can't feel anything about it. You can throw that, throw his body over your, over your shoulder and get him back to the fob. That's it. 
And as a pararescueman, you know, our, our whole job was to go to work when things went wrong. So there was always somebody with holes in them. There was always somebody who experienced a massive deceleration injury or was trapped in the mountains. So you're just constantly learning to, uh, to, to, to temp that emotion. And you do, as you said, get this diminishing return where the first time that happens, obviously you're, you're shedding, you're shedding tears by the time you've lost 10, 15, 20 people, 20 colleagues, you no longer kind of really feel anything. Uh, you want to be helpful to the families, but you don't, you don't even feel the pain of loss. And that's one of the problems with especially your special ops vets as, as they get out is that they're always busy performing and then they leave and all of a sudden you don't have to perform anymore. And now you're forced to sit with the box of things that you kept closed for two decades. And eventually that box is going to burst open. And if you don't learn how to deal with that, it's going to, it's going to lead to some, going to lead to some problems. Throw then on top of that, all of the physical injuries, the undiagnosed traumatic brain injuries and, and those types of things. So it took me a good five years to get to the point I am now, which is, uh, which is very healthy. And were it not for, uh, were it not for my wife, uh, there's no way, uh, and, and helping me through that and actually pointing out some of the things that were wrong. There's no way I would have, um, I would have gotten healthy. Which brings me to the next question, which was indeed about the box. So on the surface, then, you know, you're desensitized, you're not showing emotion, but aren't you, compounding internal trauma to the point where the floodgate could break and you could just melt down mm -hmm. or as as is the case amongst any of the not just the military in general but predominantly amongst your special operators who fought in the in the war uh in, in the global war you, they end, you end up with these very high suicide rates because mm -hmm. eventually without help they can't get to the bottom of it. And so if you have somebody who is very self-reliant, and that's another thing that special operators are, are specifically selected for is their ability to be self-reliant. Well, if your whole identity is this professional tough guy who's self-reliant, then you don't ask for help. You start then figuring out how to deal with things yourself. So the drugs and alcohol uh, uh, lane seem to be a pretty good one in a way that you can start self-medicating and, 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 you know, keeping the box closed and then it just compounds. And then the next thing, you know, you have people who are either eventually reaching out for help or their buddies step in and, and help them, uh, help them to get healthy or they put a bullet in their brain. That's so sad. We've gone on a fascinating detour here. I need to get back to the questions because quite yeah. a few have come in. Um, Linda says, you know, you've given advice to adults about the human transporters. What advice would you give to kids when it comes uh, to the human transporters? Every parent and every child listen very carefully. No person can fill every need in your life. So especially if you are a young girl and you have somebody who's contacting you online and they are promising to solve all your problems, it's too good to be true and you need to run. And that doesn't matter whether it's 
the child predators or it's just somebody who's promising you uh, the ability to make a bunch of money off of a off cryptocurrency as in you know the pig butchering or things like that it is any person who is who's online who's randomly contacting you and is giving you uh, the opportunity to have all of your problems solved through them only means you harm and you need to run away indeed all right caroline is i said do you think this new brain treatment for kids with adhd will be used to help deprogram the kids who have been transported to recover so does pharma have a role in helping kids recover from the transporters i believe so but using the term pharma my fear is that there are so many good drugs that are natural specifically within uh, the psychedelic realm or what we traditionally refer to as the psychedelic realm that are going to be squashed because big pharma can't make a bunch of money from them. And so I do believe that there are, uh, there are, there are lanes for, for pharma to drive in here. I also, uh, I know I personally, were it not for pharmacology, um, my traumatic brain injury would be a whole lot worse. Uh, and I'm on drugs that make me a lot better. So so there, there's a lane there, but I do think that we need to be very clear about what problem it is we're trying to solve and actually help pharma solve those problems as opposed to them creating a drug and then saying, oh, yeah, by the way, you can use it to solve this problem when, when it really doesn't. I'll answer this question. Is, is the algorithm affected by chat using prohibited words? Yeah, people, if you put words in the chat that aren't algorithmically friendly, that can cause problems if you're not abiding by YouTube's community guidelines. Sometimes you see people's chats getting bombed with the N-word, and that's like people trying to get that person's channel in trouble. All right, next question is from Deborah. What do you look for to know if a little person is being transported? Mm. There's a number of of signs, and there's really there's really too many to to list. But I'll give you some general context to look for. If you have if you have a if so let let's look at it. Twelve years old, zero to twelve years old, and then twelve years old and older. So zero to twelve years old, if it's if it's on the child exploitation side, it's going to be a child who oftentimes knows the person that is is abducting them or is exploiting them and they they trust that person so you're not really going to see any signs uh if you're a, a school teacher a social worker or somebody like that you might see some signs of physical abuse uh but the biggest sign of mental uh, the biggest mental sign of abuse is a a, a child who just checks out who just is just no longer there. They're not talking to anybody. They it almost appears as if uh, maybe they're on the spectrum, or, or there might be something wrong with them. Um, that's that's zero to twelve. Now twelve to let's call it you know really any age, uh, twelve to twenty two. What you're going to see is somebody who is under an abnormal control by somebody in a position of power. So keep in mind, a position of power could just be a parent. Parents, there a lot of parents uh, end up, uh, or within the child exploitation cycle, end up actually selling their children 
or renting their children out to cover drug debts. So if you have, so that is somebody who's in a position of power over, over that child. So if you have somebody who, who the child appears to be under abnormal control, that is a, that's a warning flag. Uh, and then if you have an adult or somebody who appears to be an adult who seems to be under abnormal control of somebody else, they won't right. the, they won't, the, the victim won't speak for themselves. Somebody always speaks for them. Uh, always answers questions for them. They they have to ask for permission the, to do something as simple as go use the bathroom. Um, they are always looking at the ground uh, when they're with that individual, things like that. Um, it, again, it, it'll be very clear, an abnormal control by somebody who appears to have power over that person, you've, you've got a problem. Next question is from Sego. Why don't Secret Services train a specific sector of agents to deal with this matter? It seems like they have a not-our-problem attitude towards it. Surely more could be done. Absolutely right. And that's the biggest question I have. Why do we not have a counter-human or a counter-modern slavery uh, agency uh, in any of, especially the westernized English-speaking countries? Uh, we have a... a, a drug enforcement agency, yet 90% of drugs are legal, yet we spend double digit billions of dollars a year fighting the war on drugs. And how's that going? Uh, we have a Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms. In America, alcohol, tobacco and firearms are all legal. Firearms is actually a constitutionally protected right, yet we have an entire law enforcement agency that goes after people, after the illicit sale of what are legal commodities. 100% of modern slavery is illegal. So why are why don't we have anybody, uh, any agency in any country who has a centralized focus on that issue? So that's a great question. And I don't have an answer to it other than to say it's on us, the society. Our politicians are tools to be used to fix problems. And if they do not fix those problems, then they need to be thrown out and a new tool needs to be put in its place. Um, and that's not to diminish our politicians as humans. It's just that's the reality. So we are not making a big enough stink about this issue to get the politicians to be afraid of not addressing it. That, I think, is the biggest reason why we don't have a centralized effort to fighting this problem. Yeah, I think a lot of my viewers are frustrated because they see people commit certain crimes, um, a lot of it revolving around drugs and people getting huge sentences. And then they see some of these transporters and adults attracted to kids where they've got like dozens, some of them have hundreds of victims and they just get very short sentences. And you mm -hmm. would think that the government and the politicians and society would prioritize the protection of women and kids in particular crimes against them should be absolutely at the top, but it, it just doesn't, they don't seem to count nowhere near as much. They don't. And so what I would, every single person who's listening to this, do this exercise. Anytime you talk to a politician and preferably do it in public, ask mm -hmm. them about the modern slavery and child exploitation issue and if it's important to them. And every single one is gonna say, oh yes, it's, there's gonna be lots of wringing of hands and mashing of teeth about how important it is. And then the next question you should ask is, that's excellent. 
show me the budget line item where you are funding the fight against modern slavery and and child exploitation because if they didn't allocate funds for it I mean, we'll allocate funds for planting grass and trees in medians in America between, you know, between lanes of cars for beautification because that's important to us. Well, so if it's truly important to that politician, then where is the money that they're allocating to fight the problem? In America, we spend about $22 million a year on last I, I saw fighting this problem. That's less than a dollar per victim globally so very clearly we don't care about the problem otherwise we would be allocating funding to it well said that's something we've been we're trying to reiterate for, for a long time now um sanya is wondering whether it's domestic law or international law failing law enforcement efforts for this matter Always domestic. Uh, one of the things that I like to help everybody understand is there's no such thing as international law. And anybody who doesn't believe me, uh, go try to have the Taliban arrested for any number of the international laws that they are breaking. Uh, it's International law does not exist. It is domestic law enforcement in various countries that agree to collaborate and agree to make their laws and policies align. But um, it's it's always domestic law. So Every person listening, if they are, again, back to the politicians, it's not law enforcement's fault and problem that we are not getting to the bottom of this issue. Law enforcement officers are their soldiers. They do what they're told. They can't just go out and start start investigations because they feel like it. They have a chain of command they have to answer to. Uh, and the same thing with police police chiefs. They're the generals. Right. They follow the orders of the politicians appointed over them. We've got to hold our politicians accountable for properly funding this fight and, and making this fight a priority. So this is going to be controversial now because this is, you know, you go back 100 years, people are getting sterilized. Um, what about a license to actually be a parent? Would that be worth the end? <laughs> <sighs> That's, you know, that's never going to happen. I'm going to go ahead and skip that one. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let's go to the next one then. Um, what can we tell our children what to do if they were getting a situation where they feel they are getting manipulated and trapped? I think first you've got to teach children what manipulation is. And even then it will be very difficult to, to get them to identify it just based on the fact that they are children. We know manipulation, especially as we get older as adults, because we've experienced it. And many of us have some bad stories uh, to tell because of that manipulation. So I think what we want to do is we want to first tell our, our children what it is, but they're most likely not going to, uh, uh, not going to recognize it. It's more important just to help them understand that if they get into any trouble in any situation, the best thing that they can do is to come to an authority figure that they trust. And hopefully that's you as a parent. Uh, my children know that no matter what they did, even if they're the ones who burnt the house to the ground, uh, they are not going to get in trouble for telling me what they did. In fact, if anything, uh, they'll get in a lot less trouble. So, so establishing that trust that you are there to help them navigate difficult situations, not to yell at 
them if they do something that is potentially scary in the eyes of, in, you know, in, in your eyes as a parent. So question from Papa Chubby, can Nick tell us about a typical slavery mission and has he had to use violence? Ah, so a typical mission, the way that this works, uh, I am just a, a former, uh, I'm a former shooter who now uses computers. Uh, the keyboard is the weapon for, for me and my team. But the way that this works is traffickers advertise online. And I can say how we do this because we create a Hobson's choice for the for for the the slave owner. They cannot. They have to advertise in order to do business at the scale they need to do business at in order to make the money that they need to make. It's that simple. So they have to advertise just like any other business. That is essentially the top of their sales funnel, and that is also the Achilles' heel of the predator because we exploit those advertisements in order to figure out who's behind them and which ones are associated with this issue and we we pull those into our computers by the billions and then have algorithms that crawl through them to find the signal we're looking for and then we pass that signal along to law enforcement. Now, law enforcement oftentimes uh, uses violence in order to uh, in order to bring down the perpetrator. But that's nothing that's nothing that we do anymore. Uh, and after again, after 30 combat deployments and hundreds and hundreds of, of operations, I uh, I've rolled those dice so many times that now it's up to the new generation of law enforcement. That's quite frankly, better, faster and stronger than I am. So I know we've focused on kids primarily, sound of freedom, et cetera. But Jeffrey Thompson is asking, if you're saying any age, could this also mean that adults are being exploited by these groups? Yes. So if we look at the see, the the forced labor happening in the South China Sea or uh, in, off shipping vessels, that's predominantly men. And it's predominantly older men, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, even. Same thing in the uh, the the brick kilns. And then if we go to the forced labor that's manufacturing furniture in Malaysia that might even be in your house, uh, that's going to be predominantly older men uh, with those skills and older women with those skills. Um, and then we can go into parts of India where we've got children making rugs that are then being sold in, in Western markets, uh, all the way down to, as we talked about the commercial sex markets, uh, within the Westernized countries. So anywhere that you, a person can defraud force or coerce another person into doing something for their economic benefit, being the perpetrator's economic benefit you're going to have you're going to have a problem and that can happen at at any age all the way to some of the things that we saw in ukraine which was surrogacy based where they were purposely impregnating women and then having the women deliver the babies and then selling off the babies for adoption whoa good grief nick we've got tons of questions come in but we've run out of time this has been endlessly fascinating, but more importantly, man, honestly, of all the guests we have on, who's actually doing stuff in the real world to protect kids? And it, it, I, I can just tell by the people watching this and the questions that have come in, how engaged people are. And we just, 
absolutely salute you for your wonderful work you're doing and i can't imagine how many lives you've saved and turned around and people you've got away from these horrible transporters so just uh finally can you just let the viewers know where they can uh, support you and find you yes so you can find me uh at deliver fund uh that's uh the organization that i created that that does this day in and day out uh if you uh have the means to support us please do at a bare minimum uh share the uh the content that we put out and you can find me uh on instagram at the dot nick that's n-i-c dot mckinley m-c-k-i-n-l-e-y and on youtube and the other platforms at the nick mckinley uh, no dots well we hope to see you again at some point good luck with what you're doing and be, be careful with the algorithmic strangulation take care my friend all right thank you sean cheers bye what an absolutely phenomenal guy they need to make um a movie about nick mckinley's life that would rival tim ballard sound of freedom so next up like i said in the intro it's going to be a harrowing story disclaimer here we're bringing in zayna imran and for the last two years she's tried to piece together the events that happened inside a greater manchester jail cell in 2021 Recently, The Independent posted a news story chronicling what she went through, and she is still campaigning for the missing video footage from the jail cell, etc. So tonight, we will be asking her what she remembers of that night and how she is on a campaign to get justice. So let's bring Zaina in now. Here we go. Hey, Zaina. Huge thank you for coming on. Sean, you got my name wrong. How do I say it? It's Zainab, not Imran. It's Iman, not Oh, Iman. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it got Ash. Ash has spelt it wrong on the bloody. Sean, <laughs> <laughs> um, can I ask for a favour? Um, Absolutely. Can I change the scope of this interview because some Greater Manchester Police have released another statement and they've confirmed what I knew all along that they were going to do something and they've actually gone and done it. So I. I'm going to give you an exclusive, basically, um, if that's all right. So um, my name is Zaina Iman, and um, I allege that during my detention with Greater Manchester Police in February 2021, at some point I was drugged and sexually assaulted. So um, in the same month, I made... Zaina, I've got, to, for legal reasons, okay. um, because we've got, we've got a restriction on this okay. channel... Okay. You got to, I've got to ask you this question. Do you waive your anonymity to tell I do, the story? I do, I do, yeah. For you, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so, um, so, yeah. So, I spent 40 hours in custody in February 2021, and this detainment was following a check on welfare where I was arrested for swiping an officer's glasses whilst high. That's it. They didn't bother waiting for the ambulance that they requested, but they took me into custody and detained me for four, over 40 hours. Anyway, so this happened in February 2021. Um, and the same month I made a subject access request because I had a gap in memory um, and I only um, started to regain my memory around April time and I realised that where this had happened. So GMP were really dragging their heels and long story short, um, I've been fighting for missing footage for 29 months. 
um, over 29 months. So I, a number of media outlets have covered my story. So Channel 4 covered the strip search element, which GMP allege isn't a strip search, but they don't specify the legislation where it says that the search that I was under wasn't a strip search because under PACE codes, it is. It's a strip search. Your assistant chief constable misled the public. But anyway, um, and then um, I was on Sky News who covered my entire allegations with regards to the drugging and the sexual assault. They reviewed the footage. They reviewed the custody records. They re reviewed um, my medical records as well, okay? And... Um, they said that the footage was missing. So the um, article that you refer to with the Independent, um, the journalist Manya Sanchdev, she specified the missing two hours, okay? So up until the Independent article came out, yeah? So it was only yesterday, yeah? That article came out yesterday. I also did a protest in Greater Manchester, uh, well, in, in Manchester City Centre about... Greater Manchester Police being rotten to the core and this was a protest that was done with my support a lot of media presence and it was a fairly good turnout so I just want to say thank you to everybody turn turning up so up until yesterday all my footage it still existed nobody had told me otherwise so I'd like to emphasize February 2021 I was drugged and sexually assaulted I don't allege because I know Okay, so February 2021, I made a subject access request to aid with my memory recall, right? Great Manchester Police. So I had to fight tooth and nail. I had to ask, um, navigate through every official route to legal teams to get what I actually have. Okay, so in October 2021, Great Manchester Police released all the documents, all the documents, so paperwork, right? The footage I did not receive till February 2022. They sent it in one hour clips, all jumbled up. So I had to sit there myself and put 40 hours worth of footage into chronological order. So I was detained on the 5th and the 6th, but they also gave me footage for the 7th to confuse me because I didn't think I was bright enough to put footage in date and time order. I am mate, I've got a degree anyway. Um, so, right, so I've then started, since February 2022, I started chasing the missing footage. So it's an hour worth of body-worn video from my property, roughly an hour and 26 minutes, because it's coming an hour and 26 minutes to do a 10-minute journey from my house to Pendleton Station. So I was put in the van wide awake, and the first sighting of me in custody is when I'm being strip-searched. So if the viewers want to watch Channel 4 um, news segment, the Sky News segment, the independent newspaper... Nobody else, because they've all ripped off the story of other um, of Sky and the ones that I've done. So the only people that I've spoken to is Channel Four, Sky News, and the Independent. Watch them, and everything I'm saying is covered, so it'll give you the background context. So, like I said, so I've been fighting for this missing footage, and up until yesterday, it existed. Nobody confirmed to me. So they released the footage in February 2021. I've been chasing everybody, the IOPC, the GMCA, the Police Crimes Commissioner, everybody, you, you, you name it, even up to the Home Office. Some of the letters are on my Twitter page. By all means, um, go out and have a look because I can't post everything. I, I post as much as I can. So today, Greater Manchester Police have released a statement, a statement to say that the footage that I alleged that I was drugged and raped in. So it was 10 a.m. on the 5th of February. 
1 p.m. on the 6th of February, when they were um, doing whatever they do to burn it on a disc, the disc um, <laughs> got malfunctioned and that footage was erased. Where's, where's Sean gone? Have I scared Keep you, Sean? Going. Keep going, I'm just changing my battery. Keep going. <laughs> okay, yeah, so the very footage where I alleged that I was drugged and sexually assaulted, Greater Manchester Police have deleted it. But okay, fair enough. Accidents happen. The footage has thingy. It's very weird that two separate hours are missing from two separate days. So bear in mind, so they said, they said that the disc, there was four discs, right? So rationally thinking 10 hours per disc, yeah? Work it out, people. 10 a.m. on the 5th, right? And then 1 p.m. on the 6th, missing, okay? Now, this is the footage that I've been saying and I've been telling everybody that's missing. So I told Channel 4, I told Sky News, and I told The Independent, okay? It's published the very next day after I berated them in a protest where I was able to speak without being censored. The footage's gone. But now an extensive investigation is underway to retrieve the footage. Um, can I read the statement that Greater Manchester Police have released today to you? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Sorry, do you know what? I, I want to apologise to the viewers if I'm really... I'm, 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 I knew they were going to do this. I said this in my protest video. So I, I, there's a nine-minute clip on my YouTube channel where I, uh, I mean, on my Twitter channel page where I say, I know I'm never going to get that footage. It's going to get lost, all and deleted. I predicted this. It was obvious. And they've done exactly what I said they were going to do. Okay? Yeah? It's very suspect. The very footage that I'm saying that I was drugged and raped, I fought for it for 29 months. 29 months and it's it's disappeared after i've been on sky news after the independent confirmed the hours for me the, of the missing footage come on people if you still believe that gmp are innocent you're stupid you're stupid yeah you're stupid you're stupid now the reason i'm angry look i've been drugged and raped right whether you believe it or not there's nothing i can change about about it Right, it's happened, it's happened, it's gonna be with me for forever. These officers are still serving though. This is gonna be happening again because technically on paper they've got away with it. But can I give you another exclusive? I'm not gonna name names, right? Because I know um I'm not sure how many people are viewing this, right? So um I recognise two of the officers, I'm not gonna name them, I promise, two of the officers in the footage that I do have, right? two of the officers so i'm going to just talk you through it and please like try to bear with me because it's every time i talk about it i replay the events in my head so whilst people are watching my story play out in real time i'm still a human being and i do struggle with it still so i'm going to just talk you through it so if you watch the sky news segment um there's there's a bit just before the first hour cuts out so the 10 a.m on the 5th of february 2021 where i get that i'm talking to somebody on the bench and then my skin color changes and then i get agitated because I, then i threw a cup okay so i'm giving you an exclusive because greater manchester police have never taken a statement from me the officer that was talking to me at the door I've recognised him in the footage that I have. He was the officer that asked me if I have had anal sex before. 
okay so that's suspect number one okay gmp i know you're watching because you you scour my twitter page and that's the reason i get trolled by a number of officers now the second officer um is um <laughs> my bossy one video shows that officer so this officer was dispatched from pendleton police station because he was trained to break in and he he, he came from pendleton he drilled my lock barrel Anyway, so Greater Manchester Police have gave me two identities for this officer. And right, so it's a in one he's a PC and one he's a PS. Different surnames, uh, first different first names, same surname, two different badge numbers. They put this down to an admin error, okay? An admin error, two different badge numbers, mate. I'm not buying it, okay? And then um, I've put in a complaint. So on all the phone calls. He's a PC. On all my paperwork, he's a PS. Then when I've submitted a complaint, which took him a year to answer, he's a PC. So they fucked up again. Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry for swearing. I'm fuming because I knew they were going to do this. But they've made me wait 29 months to tell me what I've already known. Um, but unlucky for GMP, I've got my story out there first. And I actually named the one of the officers that I've just explained to you to South Yorkshire Police in July 2021. Greater Manchester Police did not investigate it. So Greater Manchester Police, if you are watching, I know the I, I recognize two of the officers from the footage that you have provided. So Didums, you've accidentally deleted the very footage that I said I was drunk at mate 10. Do you think the public's stupid? Do you think I'm stupid? Do you think Channel 4 stupid? Do you think Sky News is stupid? And do you think the independent's stupid? So um, my next plan of action, so they've decided to play dirty. I'm going to do the same thing. So um, and if, if I have to resort to, and I'm not doing it yet, purely because people haven't seen the amount of data I've got. So can I just kind of emphasize the amount of data I've got? Richard, could you just bring that box over for me? Um, and I'm just going to like show you how much I've got. So I've got three boxes exactly like this, but they're all backed up onto USB sticks. The only reason I've got this is just to emphasize to Greater Manchester, please, exactly how much data I've got. Richard, is there any chance you can lift this up? Right, you'll give him one second and he'll, he'll lift it up just to show it emphasize. So I knew they were going to do this, so I was safeguarding myself, but um, I've also. I've been receiving advice from officers. So obviously um, there's Martin Harding, a former chief superintendent who went on Sky News and said that he believed I was drugged and sexually assaulted because there's nothing that disproves my allegations. He's seen the data. And if you see the footage that I've seen, and Sean, I'm happily, I will happily send you my entire footage, my entire custody record for you to review. So at home, I was high on coke. Within minutes, I passed out in the van. I'm not seeing, there's no footage of the van or the custody. The first sighting on me is when I arrive unconscious in the cell. Who the hell passes out on cocaine? Nobody. What was given to me when the officer came in to the side of the vehicle? Yeah, so I'm making the allegations and I'm being absolutely upfront. Yeah, I, I know what I know, right? So anyway, after cocaine, so after I've woken up from the unconscious strip search that GMP alleged wasn't a strip search, there's a five-hour period of sobriety. Right, so I'm fully dressed, okay, fully dressed, coherent, speaking to whichever officers coming, and my behaviour started to change when in the Sky News piece I've thrown um, a, 
a cup of tea or coffee or whatever they used to I don't know what it was but anyway the hour goes missing yeah so the 10 a.m on the 5th and then when I'm back in the cell and I'm doing all this sexual stuff mate come on you're pulling me, me like I've just got so much data against these people and even though they've deleted me footage like I said Greater Manchester Police I've been preparing for you guys to say this not only have I got a current GMP officer I um, not, not only have I got a former officer backing me but a lot of the information um, about what GMP are going to do and not going to do is by a current whistleblower who has told me that he was the person that told me that my first investigating officer for this criminal investigation that's now gone to the IOPC was himself accused of cell rape. So um, he was found not guilty. Um, he retired and he came back as a civilian officer. So yes, people, there's an alleged sex offender working in professional standards i have the data for that as well so if greater manchester police want to play dirty don't forget that i have the footage of two of the people that i believe were involved in drugging and raping me whilst i was in custody so play all the silly games you want because i will name them it's a simple as that. So no, no, this is a... sorry i'm just fuming because like i said um any questions <laughs> yeah there's lo there's loads of questions Zaina, and let me just say a few things first I just have because I only found out half an hour ago. You have every right to be fuming. This is absolutely disgusting. We've interviewed people who've worked for GMP who were actually run out by Freemasons. I met a guy at the weekend yeah. who was also a cop there for four or five years, really lovely guy, and he was run out by Freemasons, and it just seems it's corrupt to the core. Um, okay. your, your story's so important, Zaina. You know, we, we've only got about 10 minutes left. Uh, we're going we're gonna to do these questions, but cool. perhaps um, we could get you on separately and do a pre-record whereby you very slowly just take us through the events of the day and everything that led up to it and, you know, what happened. You know, I don't want you to relive it, but if you, if, if you think no, you can... No, that's fine. I'm happy yeah, to yeah. And I do um, apologize for um, being really agitated. Like I said, Greater Manchester Police have not provided me this update directly. I received this um, update via Twitter. Somebody DM'd me it. So that's how I found out. And literally it happened like about half an hour, 45 minutes before I was due on with you. So to, to put me through 29 months of agony fighting for the footage that proves my allegations, they've put me through the ringer. I am rattled. Uh, but I just want to say, because I know they'll be watching this, that there's more um, I'm not giving up yet and I will get them for what they did to me only because I know they're still serving and there's going to be other victims so yeah well, good, good good, for you and we understand why you're rattled and these bastards need to be taken down alright so first question is from Jake um, why were the police called it was a check on welfare right so it was lockdown I was struggling during lockdown I decided to get high our board, two days home alone, no visitors. That's it. Check on welfare. Um, I wasn't actually expecting the police, I was expecting an ambulance. Um, I've got um the ambulance um footage for the ambulance arriving, but I'd already been arrested by that time. I've also got the um nine nine nine. So after my friend rang nine 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 um and got through to the police, the police um when they finished that call, they requested the ambulance. So I do have the 999 call that says that GMP requested an ambulance, but they turned up first, sending two vans, one police car, four male officers, one female officer for a check on welfare. Let that sink in, people. Next question is, what method did they use to drug you? 
Well, um, I remember, like I said, I was high, very, very high when I was placed in the vehicle. And they, the Sky News segment shows a male officer coming into the side of the vehicle. Within the minutes of that vehicle moving, complete blackout. I couldn't tell you. That was at the start of entertainment. But then I also remember feeling funny after I drank something and my behaviour. So, do you know the five-hour sobriety that I mentioned, right? So the five hours of sobriety I mentioned, and just before the first hour's footage comes out, whatever I'm holding in my hands, it's in my hand. My skin colour's changed, and I've got angry, and I've thrown the footage cuts out. Sean, I will send you this footage so you can verify it for me when I'm next on the show. Gone. Question from Ray J. Does Zayna think that this has been buried because the UK police can't afford another scandal of this nature? Yeah. Yeah, and, and and I believe it's being covered up because I don't believe I'm an isolated case. And um, so the Maggie Oliver's foundation has verified that she is she doesn't help me, but she's helping another three girls that have got similar um experiences from the same station people. Now a lot of people have made this about the, my skin colour race. It's not the other three women are white, so it could happen to anybody. It's not a skin colour issue, it's just opportunity, perfect victim. You it, yeah. Please put your questions for Zaina in the chat. Wherever you are watching this in the world, we will get them to her. You've got a comment here. I'm angry as hell over this. So many vulnerable people are being used and slung to the side and ignored. You are amazing. Thank you. I, I promise. Like I said, I've got current for, uh, current and former GMP officers. The, the current ones are whistleblowers, but... Um, I'll, I'll get somewhere with this, I promise you. Like I said, that this is an exclusive, the fact that I recognise two of the officers in the footage that I do have. So I'm telling Greater Manchester Police, you didn't take my state, um, a video recorded statement from me because you did not want to confirm that you were in receipt of the evidential footage in May 2022, okay? So I'm giving you my VRI via the Sean Atwood, right? right? I know I've, I've recognised two of the officers. So, yeah, I deleted my footage, but I still have, I've recognised two of the officers. And I've told you the point where they are as well. So just before the footage cuts off, right, before the 10 a.m. footage goes missing, the officer that's there asking me questions, he's one of them. He asked me if I had anal sex. The officers that you idiots have lied to me about, give me two separate identities, you've mixed up. You've told so many lies, you've confused yourselves, and I've got the data. You're thinking, I'm stupid. I've got nothing to lose. I'm going to be honest with you. I've not been myself since this has happened. I don't sleep. I have the nightmares. This has taken over, and it's come at such a personal cost. I've got no quality of life. Right? Great Manchester Police, I've got fuck all to lose and I'm coming for years one way or another. I'm getting this out. So if you if you look at how determined I've been, after they've used and abused me, they've dumped me incoherent on a fake section that they've done at the police station because you can't put somebody on a 136 when they're already in a place of safety. A police station is technically a place of safety, okay? You've done me incoherent. So not only have I come out of a police station where grown-ass men have died, right? drugged up to me eyeballs right come on i've been strip searched five hours sobriety how why the fuck am i high when i'm leaving the hospital yeah have told me i've been drugged and raped this isn't a figment of my imagination it's backed by medical evidence where was i before i went to hospital with greater manchester police right i am not dropping this and the reason i am not dropping this right i can't get what you do to me 
I am so vocal and so cocky about this because I know I've got nothing to lose and I know the data I've got. I will not stop at anything to get a result. So yes, by all means, go delete me footage. All the dirt that I've got on all you bodies is coming out. And guess what? You might have, okay, I've admitted that there's a box where, where I am here, but um, I'm, I'm in a service department. I'm not even living at a fixed address, so come find me. But the thing is, I do read your house for your evidence, do you know what I mean? So I've got to be careful. I didn't think of that. Uh, but yeah, I've got a hell of a lot of data. I've got a current GMP officer helping me, not one but two, and I've got a former GMP officer. So I'm having getting like intel. So they think that I don't know what's happening. I knew they were going to delete my footage. So in the protest that I did yesterday in the speech, I said, I know I'm never getting my footage. What are the chances the day after they've deleted the footage? But it's taken them 29 months to tell me they've deleted it. I've been fighting it for it for 29 months. Mate, and if, can I just give some GMP some advice? The more you people talk, the more you're putting yourself in it. The more you talk, I've collated so much data, literally everything that they say, I've got a, a document to counteract it. I'm not letting go of this fight. If I weren't doing this, there's no purpose to my life anymore. I've got no quality of life. So, sorry. Zaina, you're getting asked why you decided to speak to the media and which media you decided to speak to in the beginning. Um, right. I, I obviously didn't want to come out. Um, I just didn't. But I, I navigated all the official routes, was getting nowhere. And it's desperation because I, I, I was being told what the what the GMP were doing. They were trying to pin crimes on me, hence the reason G, um, Sky covered. Um, uh, they said on the record, Zaina's assaulted an officer, but look at what the footage shows. I'm just sat there. I'm not, I've not assaulted anybody. So they're trying to pin stuff on me to cover all this up, you know, just to shut me up and go away. So one, it was out of desperation, right? Because I know these officers are still working. Um, and if they manage to silence me, they, they've covered this up. Do you get what I mean? This has probably happened as we, me and you are speaking. That 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 stops me from sleeping at night. I can't put into words what I saw during my detainment and what these people did to me. And they're going to be doing it to other people. So I don't care if people don't believe me. I don't care about the trolling because the trolling spares me on more because I'm so cocky and I'm so thick-skinned. Can't give a flying monkeys. But... For me, the only thing that bugs me is knowing that these sex offenders are still working. I've been trying and screaming and shouting for somebody to listen to me, right? And when the David Carrick and Wayne Cousins, it turns out they all bloody knew about them. Mate, I'm trying to tell everybody, just listen to me. Help me fight this. Help me raise awareness. I promise you, I will not give up until I absolutely ruin this force. I don't want is... money. I'm not the money. It's just the fact that I know they're still working and can be abusing other people. Is there a protest outside the Home Office in London tomorrow at 6 p.m. Yeah, tomorrow, tomorrow. So that's been organised by a woman called Farah from Catpole, London. Yesterday's protest was by the Women's Equality Party. So they're going to do a 40-minute silence. Um, so a, a minute for every hour that I was detained. I have um, solidarity to me and just to send out a message. But oh, when they planned it, my footage still exists. So I've got, I've got to change the state. Well, I'm going to get up and... Say my bit. So it's basically going to be uh, a more coherent version of what I'm saying to you. Because, like I said, I've only just found out, and I'm I'm 
there's mixed emotions right now so tomorrow i'm gonna i'm gonna look all pretty i'm not gonna be crying i'm gonna have my hair and makeup done and i'm gonna speak and i'm gonna speak more quietly and get my story out and um, i've still got media interest though so when i've told the media that i'm speaking to about this they're like really so i've given them new new basically what i've told yourselves so this i'm not going away great manchester please i'm like a annoying itch that's not gonna go away until i get me own way i know i can get these people you've deleted me footage you've made yourselves look guilty as sin do you know what i mean they're not very bright to be honest it's just collectively the close ranks and they try to bully you how many village idiots does it require to shut up one woman <laughs> one woman i'm five foot five and i weigh about nine and a half stones now because confetti and i put on the stone and a half like how many village idiots does it take to silence one woman and yes greater manchester please i'm calling you a village of idiots come um, single-handedly single-handedly i've done more damage to gmp in the last week than anybody's managed in years and years and years why am i putting myself through this have people seen the degrading footage that i've allowed to be printed and i don't care i'm getting these people one way or another and if push comes to shove greater manchester please i'm just going to say the names so when these officers go to vulnerable people and they say hi i'm well, tom dick and harry people are going to say "Shit, you're the one that raped Dana. i'm going to make sure of it trust me not you're gonna to have to change your name and change forces to get away. i'm fuming i'm sean i'm absolutely fuming understandably so Zaina we've run out of time what we're going to do is we're going to get back to you and we'll do a pre-record and go over it all very slowly and yeah. get that out there if, if you're up for that you know why can um, I just say why I spoke fast because I knew I only had half an hour to get a lot of information out and can I ask for you for a huge favor could you just make um send me a clip of just our talk because I want to yes. put it on and just update people about what they've done and then I'm going to say a speech at the protest tomorrow so people if you can attend please attend um i'll be a lot more calmer and a lot more coherent but i just had to get this out and i only had half an hour to get it out indeed and we salute you bravery and all of zayna's links are in the description box below this video so please support her work and we will be in touch thank to get you. the full story out of you soon thank you zayna good luck thank cheers bye -bye. cheers right, bye right next guest coming in stephen knight and nathan Nathan, welcome to Artwood Unleashed. How are you doing, sir? Not too bad, Stephen. How are you doing yourself? Yeah, can't complain. Thanks for asking. Uh, maybe you could start just by telling our uh, viewers what it is you do, what takes up most of your time. So I am a security specialist and an investigative reporter, uh, mostly based in Cambodia, looking at issues like organised crime, various types of security, conflict, uh, trafficking, human trafficking, drug trafficking, arms and, and wildlife. Uh, so report around the world a fair bit. But as I said, right now, I'm mostly based in uh, in Cambodia and Southeast Asia. Originally from Scotland? Yeah, how can you tell? Just just a hunch, just a wee hunch. Excellent. So, um, I mean, it sounds like a very intense occupation, especially some of the, the subject matter you're dealing with. Uh, I was not aware of the phenomenon on the crime rather or the scandal that is the pig butchering scam i mean that's that's one hell of a description to start with maybe you can explain exactly what that is yeah so pig butchering has been going on for quite a few years now and it 
the most simple terms, it's it's basically like most types of online or telephone scam that you get. So that process just basically describes when the person gets in touch with the victim, creates a relationship that can be on social media, it could be over the phone, however they do it, but you don't actually know the real person, develop closer and closer ties, whether that's friendship or it's a more romantic angle. And then from there, they get you to kind of put more and more investment of yourself and then eventually your your finances into some kind of scheme or plot that they've got whether it's, it's usually crypto now crypto is the main one um, but also sometimes things like gold investments and they'll maybe say listen i've got an opportunity for you to make money you've known me for many months you could trust me you know i've done really well uh, and then they'll maybe put a bit of money in and then they'll get them a return on that cash and then they'll put in a bit more maybe another return and they'll get to the point where they basically put in all of their investments all of their life savings and then at that point they'll actually just cut off contact the crypto site was fake and the money's gone so this has been going on for years and years and you know relates to many of the kind of scams that you get throughout say the uk where, where people you know meet someone on the phone or online and that kind of thing happens What's changed in recent years is the human trafficking aspect to that. Um, so there had been a few cases of this before COVID, um, mostly in places like the Balkans, uh, Montenegro, Croatia. Um, but after COVID in Cambodia specifically, which has a huge amount of Chinese casinos and with it Chinese gangsters, when the pandemic hit, it meant that the Chinese couldn't come in to gamble in the casinos. Uh, Cambodians themselves aren't actually allowed to gamble in the casinos and all tourism was shut off. So you had these huge, huge big venues just sitting there, a lot of kind of agitated gangsters looking for a way to, to fill their pockets. And what they started doing was they brought in people who voluntarily wanted to do this kind of scam. Then they realized along the way there was a way to streamline this, there was a way to force people into it, not pay the majority of them and watch their profits really skyrocket. So eventually got to a stage where they were just trafficking people in from around the world to target people from around the world. Basically, anywhere you can think of, they'll find someone who speaks that language and then target that kind of region. And then from Cambodia, this is really spread. It spread to neighboring countries like Thailand, Vietnam, um, Myanmar is a, is a huge, huge source of this now, Laos. But also now it's just continued to grow at this um, terrifying rate over the last few years where you'll find it in the UAE. Dubai, a few of the other Emirates have this going on, various places in the Balkans, like I, like I said before, um, and it just seems to be getting worse and worse. So what that trafficking element means is in Cambodia alone, you've got about 100,000 people, and that's one of the most conservative estimates. That's from the incredibly corrupt government who are massively involved in this and claimed it wasn't happening for, for over a year themselves have said there's at least about 100,000 people just in Cambodia alone. So when you start thinking about how much there is in the neighbouring countries as well, places like Laos and Myanmar are the same, where you just got entire cities, entire cities that are taken up with this and huge compounds in places like the UAE. Uh, you could talk in hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people uh, across the world who are the ones who are actually scamming you and taking your money, but they are being brutally tortured if they don't. Right. I mean, there's a lot lot to unpack. I mean, first of all, we, we both need to be careful to use the phrase human transporting, otherwise the YouTube overlords will, will swipe down on us on this chat. But I mean, I suppose a lot of people's frame of reference for this kind of thing in the West would be sort of like catfishing, wouldn't it? 
But this mm. is this is incredibly different in the sense that the scammers themselves are also victims of the gangs that are mm. running it. That's correct, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so, so many of them are. But to complicate things, many of them aren't as well. Uh, a lot of the time, right. it, it can depend on the type of person that you are. So, so some people go in and they realise what this is. Uh, they think it's an IT job. I've spoke to victims that thought they were going into an engineering role and they find out what the job is and they go, oh, no, 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 I, I don't want to be scamming people. It's not the kind of person I am. And they say, well, you don't have much choice. You're going to do this. Um, then other people go in, realise the job and go, I'm actually okay at this. And if you make enough money from it, then the gangsters start letting you have a bit of cash back in your pocket. And if you're really good, they want to hold on to you. Um, so if you're not very good at it or you don't want to be there, often you get sold between different syndicates and, and you get moved between different countries. Um, but those who are good at it can find a bit of a miserable but quite profitable living. So they, they're a bit of a minority within there, but there are some like that. And it's funny you mentioned that kind of uh, catfishing aspect of it because they've, they've got the technology now to do this and it's basically just supreme catfishing where they have a really sophisticated AI where they'll have a, a fake Instagram account, which will be, you know, say an Indian model from, from somewhere in the world. Um, they'll use her picture, but now they've got the, the AI there to actually have video calls with that fake person and make them talk and do other things online so that you don't really have any question that that person's real. So I think that as well, it's important to remember to always have a bit of sympathy for the people who do end up getting scammed in the end because it can get anyone and what the scammers often say in Cambodia is there's there's no unscammable person there's just the wrong script that's fascinating isn't it because I, I we all like to think we're above that kind of thing we all like to think we're quite savvy to the signs of like for you know telephone scams but these things get more and more sophisticated so what what, what you just said that just blew my mind the idea that you could get an ai generate generated person to appear on video calls and and give somebody the impression they're speaking to a human being this, this is actually going on now yeah yeah it's been going on for at least two years um that level of sophistication at, at least 18 months so i mean this this sounds like an incredibly well-financed operation. Um, these people that are lured there under the the promise of jobs and, and works uh, work there rather um, are sometimes then held to ransom themselves if they want mm -hmm. to leave. I've read in, in your report. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have the there's kind of key target countries where the people who end up working there come from. Uh, originally, they were mostly from China, um, and they were then targeting mainline Chinese people uh, to try to scam them. Uh, the Chinese government did various crackdowns on this to, to some extent, but then there's also huge levels of kind of corruption within various provinces within China that allow it to happen to, to some extent. But then it, it's really spread to places like Thailand, Vietnam, um, but where you can find kind of the Western languages, where it's like, say, English. If you can find English-speaking people, they're worth a lot more. So they're increasingly targeting places like Bangladesh, India, Pakistan. And then they can use those language skills to target wealthy Australians, Europeans, Americans, um, Brits. And they still want the people with the Chinese language skills as well. And they can be used in a different department. And you can have an enormous compound, like a you know 14-floor building, and every floor has a different room, the kind of size of like a cramped office with doing different scams to different parts of the world. Okay, so I mean, 
In terms of the authorities, obviously there has been a lot of attention shown on this. You've done some excellent investigative journalism regarding it. There was the BBC uh, mini documentary on it not not so long ago. What what's the official response from the authorities? Because they cannot not be aware of it now. Surely they they must be taking some sort of action. Yeah. So this is uh, the answer to the question is is, is like infuriatingly slow. Um, and it's not that they're not aware of it. It's often that they're refusing to really um, proactively act on it. And there's there's several layers to, to, to why that is. So in Cambodia, like I said earlier, they had initially denied that this was happening. They said, oh, it's kind of like fake news brought in by, say, Western media um, to kind of discredit Cambodia's reputation. Then there was more and more and more victims. There was more and more proof. And then they tried to phrase it as a labor dispute, saying, well, they're claiming they can't leave, but actually they just want paid more. And that's all it is. It's basically just people having an issue with their employers. After, it was about 18 months from when the first pieces of this came out until countries really started to accept what was going on within the region. And the international community wasn't much quicker. It was a few months after the, these kind of countries in Southeast Asia started to accept it that the United States and uh, Australia started speaking out about it as well. And at first, I think maybe there was an aspect of them not quite believing what was going on because it, it sounds so sensational. Um, but then also localised um, international law enforcement, like, you know, your your FBI's and, and so on out in that region, they've obviously got direction from DC um, about what issues to, to really push forward. And they're there on the invitation of the host country. So if it's an issue like this, that could really embarrass them. It could create more issues where they push more towards China and away from the US and so on. So there's been a lot of political issues uh, like that. But at the forefront of the lack of response from the authorities um, from the countries where it's happening is just enormous, huge corruption, uh, where to the very highest levels of government and most of the countries I mentioned, there are extremely high level government officials operating directly within this world. Is this sort of thing a predominantly Chinese issue do they seem like the biggest exporters of scams in the, in the western world it seems like whenever i hear somebody having had you know money ripped from their bank account or some uh goods uh, promised them for a cost that never arrived it always seems like china's involved I, i've actually was a victim of this myself over covid mm. i uh, tried to order some too good to be true dumbbells and uh, a resistance band turned up and i had no recourse whatsoever still use the resistance band though just out of spite uh if anything but is, is china at the forefront of this sort of thing? yeah there, there are other countries that are involved in it um especially before this kind of covid switch from just pig butchering to the actual cyber slavery um um before that there were and there still is there was quite a few russians uh, russian groups involved in it and um operating out of israel eastern europe the balkans um, but in terms of the actual forced aspect of the workforce, that is very much a Chinese, Taiwanese and Hong Kong run operation. Not all the one syndicate that does it, but the vast majority of the groups doing that come from, from that part of the world. Increasingly as well, there are some Indonesian groups involved, but really the, the top bosses are always almost always from China, Taiwan, or Hong Kong, um, with a few cases recently in Cambodia coming out of the, the Japanese Yakuza being involved, but it's, it's predominantly the Chinese. 
Do we have a huge, I mean, just to take it into, uh, to blindly stumble into politics, I mean, do we have a huge problem with our relationship with China anyway? I mean, it seems like you could you could look solely at their own in-house human uh, rights abuses. Uh, obviously, there's the global pandemic we've all just endured, um, you know, animal rights. Anything you can look at really doesn't bode well for relationships between us and China. However, we have a massive reliance on their labour force for our cheap goods. Is that the reason we're just sort of stuck in this relationship with them and, and have no way of kind of responding to all the nefarious things the CCP is responsible for? There's certainly an aspect of that. Uh, and I think when, um, you know, I, I was out, uh, reporting about what was happening in, um, to the Uyghurs um, back in 2016 and thought there would be this enormous outrage of it. And then more people did work, more people did work, and eventually everyone knew about it. But British and American, other European governments didn't really do very much about that. And if you're not going to do much about a clear and active, close to amounting to, if, if not actually one, a, a genocide, then... Criminal human traffic, uh, human um, transit. Um, that isn't going to be the switch that gets you either, right? With China and the UK, especially, I think it's a especially worrying time because the UK government has made some steps to crack down on the Russian oligarchs. Although I think that's not been quite as deep as as people think. And in their place, you've still got this city of london which is just perfect for large-scale international money laundering transferring of your funds and setting up shop as a very successful gangster and, and buying some property in mayfair now that there's a bit less of the russians there there's definitely been a lot more movement of wealthy chinese taiwanese and, and hong kong individuals ending up there there was a story that broke last year um safeguard defenders the organization they found there was over a hundred secret police stations around the world that were being used to essentially harass Chinese dissidents, tell them that their family was in trouble if they uh, didn't stop um, you know, saying bad things about China, whether it was in Germany or in the US or in the UK. Uh, the Chinese government said, that, oh, no, these centers are actually just to help renew driving licenses for Chinese citizens. Um, but that's definitely not the case. And we went and visited uh, one of them in London, uh, found it to be essentially a fake uh, online delivering app uh, with fake addresses registered near it, just full of you know thousands of letters because they've just been basically shell companies for various different gangster exploits around the world. Um, guys connected to this have been taken down on huge trafficking, like drug trafficking charges, and then let go very soon out of UK courts. So this is happening in the UK. UK government has been incredibly quiet on it and uh, there's Very actually animated uh, canine this evening by the sounds of things yeah i wasn't sure if that was coming across or not he's uh just watching my my mate's dog while he uh, goes out in a wee day and uh, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's uh solid mating there for sure solid friendship <laughs> effort yeah sorry continue uh, so, you know, essentially there's, there's been very few countries that have spoken out about this and I, and I can't imagine a more kind of egregious, uh, you know, movement into your own sovereignty.
than setting up secret police stations to harass citizens living in your country. But it's happening uh, in the US. The police station was in uh, Chinatown in New York. Two people have now been arrested, but it's taken uh, about eight months for that to happen. No arrests have happened in the UK and most of the most arrests of Europe. Uh, there's not been a there's not been an arrest of these secret police stations. So we definitely are just allowing China, not just politically, but but also the kind of organized crime actors that are very closely related to the political actors to kind of walk all over us for sure. That's incredible. I mean, I had no idea about that at all. I mean, I, I spoke, we spoke to somebody on this, this very show a few months back who was uh, raising concerns about CCTV cameras in the UK that were produced mm -hmm. by a Chinese company. And I think the argument was that these CCTV cameras, a lot of them in very kind of sensitive areas, could be mm. accessed by the CCP if they so desired. Yeah. Uh, is that something you're aware of? Is that on your radar at all? It's it, not specifically to here, but obviously the kind of concerns about Chinese state involvement in, in any security infrastructure should always be taken pretty seriously. Um, with pretty much any um, Chinese company, there's, there's an element where the, the state can exert control over them. Um, so I don't think anything's entirely secure if the Chinese uh, the Chinese state's behind it at all. Obviously, there are loads of legitimate international companies that come from China doing good things around the world, but I think anything sensitive or, um, you know, like kind of anything sensitive in nature shouldn't be trusted to a country that's exporting gangsters on this scale or basically committing genocide in Xinjiang. I mean, before we get back to uh, pig butchering, because there's a lot to cover there, What do you have any views on the proliferation of TikTok, for example? I know a lot of places, I think America, have, have banned military personnel for having that on their phones. Um, there's this argument that it is being used to propagandise, you know, a different output depending on which location it is uh, being accessed in the West, things like that. Have you any thoughts on that? I, I wouldn't go as far to say anything I'd seen actually suggest some kind of effort from the you know from Beijing to use it as as something actually you know has some negative effect to the countries that import it. Um, obviously, there's there's concerns about the kind of the content that can be on there, and it, it makes sense for any security clearance actor in any part of the world to not have a device on their phone that the Chinese government could potentially have <laughs> access to. But beyond that, to be honest, I wouldn't, I would read into things any more than kind of hearing some kind of conspiracy theory stuff on it. But other than just a basic thing, if the Chinese government have access to an app, don't, don't have it on your, make your work phone if you're in the FBI. <laughs> yeah, it did. It, yes, yeah, common sense when you say it out loud, I suppose, <laughs> isn't it? Um, let's talk a little bit about the, um, the terminology of pig butchering. Because I believe, mm. I mean, who, who does the pig refer to exactly? And the who pig are is the, the sorry, who the, are the dogs the pig in is scenario like, yeah. as well? So the, the pig is the actual victim of the scam. So you want to get them as fat as possible before you kill them. So that means giving away as much of their wealth as they physically can before you realize they're right, that's them popped, they're done. So then then you kind of execute your relationship with them no longer have have any conversations the dogs are the ones who are actually committing these uh these kind of offenses to, to to the victims and sometimes they can be victims themselves and sometimes they're not um the terminology varies like kind of from place to place and some like news outlets will pick up on a thing and can make it that it's it's universally known but these things can all be run so 
in such different ways that it can change. But overall, pig butchering is now understood to be this kind of fattening up the victim, but more usually now in reference to the the forced slavery aspect of the of of the kind of process. And and who decided on this terminology? Because I, I, it seems to be something that the people involved. The, the terms rather they're used by the people involved themselves it's not like somebody from the outside looking in has kind of assigned that to it it seems to be they they use them terms almost approvingly as far as i know i think the term came from like a colloquial thing in china and then it just stuck with law enforcement and the the people doing it basically um so i'm not sure the exact origins but it's been around for a while like it's been around before what's happened in the last few years has been here and it's definitely been used in China for some time. So it's it's that way where people in China will hear that phrase and immediately know what it is and, and all the connotations that go with that. Um, and now that places like the UK are so much more a target of these scams, they still don't know what those kind of words mean. It shows how much more education there's needed in this part of the world to, to let people know what's going on and, and be aware of, basically. Yeah, and um, just swinging back to that BBC expose on it, uh, that people can find on, on YouTube if they're interested. I think it's about 40 minutes or so. I mean, it seemed in, in that you know small documentary, the targets were predominantly female, the, the targets of the scammers, from what I could see. Does this seem like a common theme? They they can be, but I think that... Um, I know some of the people behind that uh, documentary, it was really well done. I think that um, they they spoke to a lot of people possibly from, from similar um, pig butchering networks, so maybe just what was shown in that documentary was more targeting females. I don't think it is always that way. Um, I think any any female or any male that is potentially a bit lonely. I mean, the one that I hear about more is usually your quite well off, out of shape, uh, you know, guy sitting in his flat in London. Maybe his wife's left him. Maybe his kids don't like him too much, and you know. Pretty Zelda from uh, from Bosnia starts a wee conversation online and um, and and then it just develops from there. And I think if anyone's lonely enough, this kind of stuff can work. Yeah, it's sad, isn't it? I mean, it, it's almost uh, if we're being you know if we're leading with empathy, it's almost a double loss for these people because one, they're having their savings completely rinsed from them mm. by a scammer. And secondly, they're losing almost this this great love or this relationship or this mm -hmm. bond they they've imagined they've yeah. created with this complete stranger. That must have some sort of huge psychological impact for these people as well. Yeah, it, it definitely does. Um, I, I've definitely spent more time speaking to the victims who have been forced to to do the scams, but of the people who have lost their money, I think it's the embarrassment of it as well. Mm. So obviously, yeah, losing that personal relationship, but. Imagine, you know, being a relatively successful person, so you've built up a business or, you know, you've just done well in your career and you've got a few quid behind you or in your pension, whatever it is. And then you have to go and tell the kids, I've lost everything because someone on the internet started talking to me and I thought it'd be a good idea to give them my £100,000 that's in my pension pot. Um, so it's humiliating for people. So often that, that first few times that they get scammed, they, they, they know it and the scammers know that they know, but they'll actually kind of push themselves to believe it and continue that relationship thinking, oh, maybe it's not because they just couldn't. It's almost like they would rather lose more money to have a few weeks of believing that they haven't fallen for something like this than actually yeah. not lose the rest of their money. And again, like, I just anyone who's listening who's been a victim of it or who will be, 
uh, it's, it's really like it's not on you there are things that you can do to try and help but uh, it, it can get anyone it really can like you said everyone thinks they're they're savvy and together on it but it, it doesn't take much and these conversations they get more and more sophisticated so there was one place so there's me and my uh, my partner Lindsay Kendi we do all this work on together and there was a place in Cambodia and it sounds like something of a film because it's actually on a, a misty mountain that the the local people kind of believe is haunted it was destroyed during the war there's bullet holes everywhere and but it's this big beautiful mountain and now it's turned into a kind of center of these scam operations and we went in December and there was one that was completely full, maybe about eight buildings, eight stories high each, completely full of, of different scam operations. People couldn't leave barbed wire around, around the area and armed guards and so on. Then a few months later, that actually got raided, uh, which happens sometimes. And then they, they get a tip off before and they get away. Um, so then it was left empty. So we managed to sneak into it just after it was um, kind of discarded by the, by the scammers. And there was notes explaining right, my target is India. But Indians are now getting too smart about scams. So this is the way you need to open up the conversation if there's any chance they're going to believe you. And they have charts and graphs. They've got whiteboards up explaining the kind of the most likely lines that will will make inroads in different parts of the world. Um, so often, you know, it's not just simple things like, oh, I think you're really, really sexy, Bob from Essex. It can be stuff like, listen, um, supposed to have a hair appointment today or something and then it's oh wait sorry is that the wrong number so i didn't get that oh man i just seen from your picture though that you were here like i know something about that or they'll know a wee bit background before and they can just do it in a natural way they can get anyone so yeah i think just general kind of advice is if anyone starts talking to you online just don't give them any money yeah i mean that's that's extraordinary to, extraordinary to hear because a lot of people may think that these people are just chances putting the feelers out and trying as many people mm -hmm. as they can until they get a hit a sort of barnum method of, of scamming people but from what you're saying this is highly organized it's it's specifically targeted they have methods in place and they actually adapt to, to certain areas depending on if they're getting wise mm -hmm. to these scams so it's, it's both so they do have specific methods and targets and plans depending on who and where they're targeting. Um, but they also will target dozens of people a day at the same time. So everyone's got a different layer of how this works um, and what their role is within it. So when you're the, the first stage of operations in a scam center, maybe they come and they say, here's 25 people's names on Facebook. Get eight of them and you've achieved your success today and what get eight means is start a conversation and then once the conversation has started and it'll often be you know it'll be like some 20 year old guy from india is pretending to be a you know beautiful model from singapore and then maybe even having to do things like have phone sex with them and you know develop this kind of very strange relationship once there's a certain level of trust developed within that 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 day then you pass that person over to the next person in the chain who will have more kind of sophisticated ways of pushing that envelope a little bit more and starting to maybe go into the financials so you can be along a huge chain of people that are all in it on scamming you and often people think that like you said oh it's really sad i've lost this relationship with this person as well that person might have been 12 people so, I mean, moments ago, you said you'd spent more time speaking to the, the victims of the sort of human transportation aspect, the people who were, you know, kind of forced by these gangs to participate in these scams. What, what sort of people did you speak to and what, what kind of things did you learn from them? 
Yeah, so mostly people from you know, different parts of um, uh, Southeast Asia, Pakistan, India, um, and yeah, it's been it's been harrowing. Um, so, for instance, there's a there's a Vietnamese girl that um, that we helped get out. Um, so we've tried to basically organise and orchestrate a few a few rescue attempts and, and try to get people out where we can. This Vietnamese girl and she, maybe like um, early 20s she got in touch and said look this is happening heard you can maybe help so my first step was to go to the the Vietnamese embassy in Phnom Penh in Cambodia explain the situation the the guy behind the counter wasn't even surprised you know you walk into the kind of general visa area and he was like okay okay what province is it happening in Cambodia said the province it's a province that sits on the border of Thailand so they said you'll need to speak to the consulate office up there we are not we're not able to deal with this I was like, okay, well, that's fine. I'm, I'll be going up anyway, but could you phone them and explain to them in Vietnamese the situation? I've got the girl's passport number. I've got her picture. I've got contact details for her whole family. I, I know the exact location she's in. And they said, no, you don't. It doesn't, it doesn't concern us. And then I had various kind of international law enforcement people helping. I had some local police that I trust that I was working with. And I was trying to arrange a rescue attempt and then was, I got a text from her about midnight saying, they know a journalist is trying to help me. Um, they said they don't care. No one's going to be able to help you, but they are going to move you to Myanmar um, tomorrow. So Myanmar is like an active war zone. It's a lot more difficult to get someone out once they go there. I've had people end up there and we can get them out, but it's, it's very difficult. Um, and then had kind of armed, what they call volunteer defense forces in Thailand to work on the border. They were ready to wait for these people to, to do the interception. They were there um, and managed to go high enough up the chain so this one person could get out in time, basically sanctioned by the kind of chief of police of, of Cambodia. And then she came out and then she was held in various forms of other detention for months. And then the local police just took all of our money off her until they eventually let her go home. And then the Vietnamese police fined her for not having a proper visa, um, even though she had her passport taken off her by the scammers. And you got people like that and stories like that that are just quite constant. You've got people who, uh, one girl I've spoken to actually seen uh a pregnant woman uh, miscarry in front of her because she was uh, this was in Myanmar she was she was beaten so severely with tasers so baton tasers so you can hit and you can you can electrocute them at the same time and she was uh, beaten so severely the woman miscarried and then she was put back to work the, the very next day uh, one Chinese man that we spoke to he was actually trafficked uh, he was brought into Cambodia on a Cambodian police motorcycle and then driven right up to the gates of the scam center and delivered straight to the scammers. He tried to escape by jumping off, I think it was the, it was the fourth floor maybe, um, and fractured the bottom of his spine. And then the, the the scammers looked at him and laughed and thought, there's no way you'll live. So they just let him crawl. They let him crawl out and they thought, well, you'll die on the street and it's not our problem. They managed to get in a tuk-tuk and he, he, he actually got home and managed to recover. So it's, it's, it's kind of stories like that that are just just constant basically if you don't do a good enough job or if they have an attitude or they, they try to get out then they'll be tased or beaten usually um in really humiliating ways in front of everyone else and they'll be kept in horrible conditions you know eight people in a in a room forced to work maybe 16 hours a day um they'll be underfed they'll just be just desperate to, to die so you'll see in many of these places 
that maybe it goes up to 16, 17 stories and they'll have bars on the windows that high and that's not to stop you escaping, that's just to stop you killing yourself. Oh, wow. Sounds like hell on earth, doesn't it? And um, yeah. I mean, how, how best do we explain to Westerners maybe the, the level of corruption in these places, you know, from government to local law enforcement? I mean, I'm not, I'm not making the claim that there are no issues with the police in the UK or America or anything like that, but this is, this is a whole different culture, a whole different level, isn't it, when, where corruption yeah. is concerned? So the best way I'd, I'd explain corruption in countries like Cambodia, for instance, is something called the patronage system. Now, Cambodia is a very, very poor country, um, but it's managed to maintain a quite delicate peace for the last 30 years or so. And they do that because every there's not very much taxation that's taken by the government. Um, people aren't really looked after very well. But if you're in the, the government, the police or the military, or even if you're a teacher, any civil servant whatsoever, you have to pay up to 50% of your salary to the next person in the chain. So if you're a teacher, it's to your, your principal. If it's a, you're a constable in the police, it's to your sergeant. So a um, low-level cop in Cambodia might make $200 a month, and then they've got to pay $100 of that to their sergeant. So they've got to find a way to make up that lost income. And often the way that people do that is through illegal activity. And often they'll be directly offered that illegal activity by the police or by the military, whether it's illegal logging or it's bringing people over borders or it's, or it's moving meth, heroin or, or firearms. Uh, and then when you get to a higher level, you've still got to pay that half salary. But at that point, you're already kind of indoctrinated into this broken system. You've already got business interests, people that rely on you. And the police and military because these countries are so poor just essentially run like a kind of hierarchical mafia structure so there's a lot going on here and this is a, a very fascinating topic so if anyone's got any questions for nathan put them in the comments now and i'll, I'll put them to him as, a, as and when they come in um i'm just a, a question regarding your own personal uh, safety and concerns because obviously you, you're kicking a hornet's nest really investigating this these are gangs that stand to lose quite a substantial amount of money if they're exposed you know their, their wallets are on the line then you've got to factor in the corruption uh, mm -hmm. and the complicity of the local authorities do you do you worry about your own security concerns when you're when you're investigating this when you're out there talking to these people yeah yeah definitely and like you do get times where you you know me and Lindsay have been briefly trapped in kind of scam compounds with triads chasing after us we you know once ended up in the wrong queue trying to get in somewhere and realized that was for that was for the blood slaves and they were going to take our blood then there are these kind of scary moments where you do think what what are we doing um but, wait 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 wait, wait. Uh, what's a blood slave what yeah, the so hell is a blood slave so there's there's been uh, with these scam centers what's also come has been things uh like taking forcibly taking blood from some of the victims who aren't very good at the scamming so they're not making enough profit of that so they'll um forcibly draw blood out of them and then they'll sell that in a black market usually to people in, in china or the gulf um increasingly it looks more like there might be links to organ trafficking as well happening but i've, I've not definitely linked that to scam centers but it, it seems to be happening in the same areas um so all of that is yeah, it's definitely very scary but i would say that as a kind of international uh, journalist working in these areas, you're definitely in 
a lot less danger than the, than the local journals and researchers who are taking a lot more risks and it's like their family that can be found it's them that can be disappeared with a lot less hassle so i'd say that it kind of they're the ones that are yeah they, they who should be a lot more concerned about their safety but it, 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 it can be a bit hairy at times not to linger on this uh, too much, but what does one do with black market blood? People need blood. Um, it's the same reason, you know, you go and donate blood a few times a year if you can. So, um, so transfusions. Yeah, transfusions. Okay. So these um, centres that these people are at, they obviously there's accommodation there, uh, mm -hmm. you can call it that. What sort of conditions are we talking in? I mean, talking about, do you have an idea of what a, a daily uh, routine would be for somebody stuck in one of these complexes? Yeah, it, it can vary quite a lot, but it could be, you know, waking up after sometimes only four or five hours sleep, maybe. Um, maybe after doing a 12, 13 hour a day. And you wake up and some of these centres, um, which I've heard in the BBC that uh, documentary talks about this as well, some of these centres will do motivational shouts and kind of martial arts training dances to get people in the mood for, for scamming, basically. So you all stand and shout and sing and get you motivated, like a kind of corporate retreat thing, but it's, you know, all forced. Um, and then they might do that for half an hour or whatever, and then they go into a small office with maybe another... 10, 12, 13 people or so, uh, all doing various different scams and kind of passing the phone over to each other, trying to get the next contact. And if you're maybe on that the bottom of the chain, just trying to develop the initial relationships, then maybe you have to turn it into a sexual thing. So then you've got some girls in the office as well that if you don't have the AI working for you, like we mentioned earlier, then you might hand it to the really pretty girl who then has to kind of go do that role. And then she'll probably have another one to do after that. So she'll hand the phone back and then you'll try to continue to develop that relationship. Um, and then any kind of problems, if you try to communicate with people who are you're not allowed to, because you still you do still have a phone. So these people can often reach out. That's how we're able to stay in contact. They they need to have a phone for the for the job. So it's impossible to kind of monitor exactly what they're doing. But if they find out you've been on your own personal Facebook or you've been speaking to your parents or a journalist, then yeah, you'll probably get beaten or electrocuted for a while in front of everyone. Um, maybe chained up and, and left there for a few hours. Um, and then you'll have a meal and you go to bed and you'll repeat it. There have been people, obviously, I think you mentioned this in your report, and I think it was certainly mentioned in a few other articles, people who have escaped uh, these conditions, thankfully, have, have claimed that they've heard that you know hundreds of people have died in these conditions. Mm -hmm. Are these the kind of places where that could plausibly happen without so much as uh, a raised eyebrow from the authorities or the, you know, the wider, wider world? Yeah. Um, it's a place on the Cambodia-Vietnam border called Bavette, um, there was a girl beheaded in one of these scam centers a few months ago. We were there the day after. No police presence, no uh, crime scene tape. We walked right up. God. Scam center still operating. Armed guards are still there. Um, being beheaded 12 hours before. Uh, how, they just said it was, was a, a romantic dispute. The police have eventually had to confirm it because there was so much blood and so many photos online of what had happened. And they said it was some kind of like lovers tiff and that's what it was about um no one was arrested i don't think in the end um but yeah for sure and it's very hard for even when governments 
there's there's definitely complicity to some extent with most of the governments that are involved with this happening in their countries but there are people trying to do something about it as well but it's incredibly difficult to access any of these places the because you have to go through various different levels of police and state infrastructure so the local police are will be completely in the pocket of the gangsters and then maybe there's a unit that wants to try and help you but they need to gain access through several different layers by the time you reach the scam center then you might be the stage where they've already moved that person because they know you're looking for them so it's incredibly easy to get away with murder the, the main issue is people killing themselves um and yeah often they'll just say they were yeah they were working abroad they died if the family even hear anything there's, there's plenty of families that just had their loved ones go missing and that's it the bodies just disappeared what is a positive development then for you in this because you you're doing all this great work exposing all this and you, you're a sort of an outsider looking in because we know what happens to dissidents from within regimes and, and areas of the mm. world like this however it's still mm. uh, a company what far uh, sorry a country far away from the jurisdiction of Western forces in any in any like practical sense, what would be a good development for you, so progress on this issue? Um, there, there's definitely been some positive moves, which is a kind of an overall acceptance that this is happening. So hmm. um, like Interpol came out uh, maybe last month and actually issued a statement on it. And it, was, it, was quite, it was quite thorough for the first time, which isn't going to make huge changes, but it starts to alert people to, to what's going on. And like I said, it's not just Southeast Asia. It's, it's the Gulf as well, places like Dubai. Um, so it, it's really everywhere. So that just gets a bit more awareness for local law enforcement to look out for this kind of thing, which if you do have any form of kind of um, significant Chinese influence in the country and there's enough corruption in the government, then, then this will be coming there. Um, a positive is that now people are starting to address it a little bit more. There's, there's more scope for us to go and do investigations into it and there's more people wanting to listen to what we find in those um what would be better is if we had more direct mention of it um like in this country for instance the government has not said a word about it and you're talking tens and tens of thousands of slaves possibly hundreds of thousands of slaves around the world and fine there's there's various humanitarian issues across the world that you can't expect the uk to comment on all the time but this one is directly impacting UK citizens as well, taking billions from the economy because of this. And again, sensitivities with China means that they're not talking about it. So I'd just like to see more of the conversation happening around it. I'd like to see more Western countries finally admit to what's going on and, and offer to, you know, send some support in, in various different ways. Um, but it's not it's not looking good. Hmm. Well, Anexus has commented, or asked, I suppose, uh, so scammers on this scale are actually slaves, which I suppose is the really, especially terrifying aspect of all this, isn't it? <clears throat> These are not opportunists, well, not entirely opportunists that are lining their own pockets there under the control of somebody else. Would, would slaves be an accurate description? Definitely, definitely. Not all of them, but um, there's a huge, huge amount of those scammers that are slaves, complete slaves. And to give you an idea of the scale of it, certain cities in um, in Cambodia and in Myanmar and in Laos where you walk down the street and for six, seven, eight blocks there's nothing but scam compounds you know, eight to twelve storey high um, covered in barbed wire and that is all that exists on those eight to ten streets it's huge and there's no chance for those people to get away so yeah, I guess the equivalent does feel like you're 
you know, you're walking down the old the old cotton fields and just seeing line after line of slave and no one's doing anything about it. Fred, uh, with the row, as I asked, is North Korea involved in any way? I, I am aware that I believe North Korea does engage in sort of human transportation over to the, the Chinese border. Uh, a lot of people think they're fleeing the, the North Korean regime just to find themselves sold into, uh, you know, transportation there. Is, is there anything you're aware of regarding North Korea? That's uh, a really good question, actually. It's something that me and Lindsay have been exploring quite a lot the past year. Um a lot of the a lot of this activity picked up in places where there used to be North Korean restaurants, uh, which were actually a, a, a decent wee revenue raiser for the North Korean regime. But sanctions meant that they kind of had to close around the world. Um, North Koreans are involved in massive cryptocurrency scams. Uh, the main one uh, being um, if you read about Lazarus Project in uh, Bangladesh, where they actually just almost took half of Bangladesh Bank's entire revenue. So they've got the capacity for enormous um, kind of crypto scams. Uh, they have departments of their government that are specifically involved in various forms of online crime. And we know that they use forced labor quite a lot as well. There's a few crossover individuals of the North Korean state who are linked to various types of organized crime in these areas that this is happening. I'm pretty sure there's a strong link, but I've... But Fred, I've not, I've not quite proved it yet. But hopefully, hopefully we'll get there to prove it because I think there's quite a serious role of North Koreans uh, within the kind of bigger atmosphere of this. That's really interesting. I didn't expect you to have a whole host to say there about North Korea. It looks like that's that's a really big issue. So, so what? Watch this space on that uh, for sure. I mean, is the is the social economic issue here with these places in terms of not? many opportunities uh no way to earn a decent living that kind of creates a culture where you know gangland uh, scams are, seems to be the only viable option to earn any money yeah definitely i mean there's places in the heart of this in cambodia is a place called scenicville which is known for chinese casinos basically and now a lot of chinese gangsters and kind of gang wars and awful things happening there and if you speak to some of the the kids at local schools the few that are remaining that are for Cambodians, um, they'll basically say that, yeah, no, some form of illegal work within the casino or scam industry is probably what I'll go for. So maybe not a forced aspect, but they know that that's one of the only viable job opportunities for them. So maybe they'll be a guard and they'll be able to leave at the end of their shift, but they'll guard the slaves inside. Um, or they'll be a driver and they'll drive people from the airport to the, to the slave centers, basically. Uh, and people just see that as one of the few games in town. Um, and maybe a little bit less dangerous for them than selling meth on the street corner. I'm just, just going to throw a massive philosophical, cultural and social question at you now for no reason whatsoever. But Don has asked, um, is the violence against women cultural or is it solely born of poverty? That's a big question. Uh, I don't know if it's necessarily either. It can definitely be a bit of both. There's definitely countries in the world where... I don't know if the culture has created the violence against women, but it, it's it's maybe not dealt with it in a way that's that's prevented it or slowed it down. Um, but I think when every country that I've done any work in has had really serious violence against women, especially women forced into into sex work or just kind of you know huge problems of sexual assault, um, I think when you see that in every corner of the world, I don't think we can say it's cultural. I think it's 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 absolutely everywhere, and it's not necessarily poverty either. So a lot of it is just um, I'd imagine changing attitudes towards 
how you treat the opposite sex, what your roles are in society, and if you try to find a, a way to abuse people based on your understanding of them being lesser than you, then it will lead to some form of violence. Good answer. Um, so Fred, Fred's uh, made another point here about chargeback scams and card cloning are massive at the minute. Is this something that's coming out of that area of the world as well? Cloning cloning cards? It seems seems like you'd possibly need uh, local support for that as well. Yeah, it's, it's more of a local issue. I, I mean, it happens with various triad syndicates and kind of Russian-linked groups, especially in, in Eastern Europe. Like they're, they're very proficient at it, and this happens a lot in the UK, but it's not so much related to the online side of things. Do you know so, much yeah, like you said, more localised. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm just, I'm, I've, I realise I'm venturing into high-tech territory that you didn't come on to talk about here, but do you know much about card cloning and, and how people do it? No. No, great. No, That's fine. I, I do not know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, Jake's also asked: uh, Are the slaves uh, contractual property, as were American slaves? I don't think it's the same thing, is it? It's it's an interesting question, actually, because um, in Cambodia, um, what is helping a lot of the scammers who have slaves uh, fight a kind of not a legal case, but say enough to the cops that they can say it's not an issue. But it's mostly financial, but they'll get them to sign contracts and these contracts will be ridiculous they'll say i agree to not being able to leave this compound and i'll work for no money and sure you can beat me or whatever it is and they'll often be in a language that they don't speak but they'll, they'll force them physically force them to sign this thing that they don't know what they're signing I've, I've seen some of the contracts and they're ridiculous and then when the police come in they go ah well it does seem like it's a labor dispute because you did sign the contract um and then on top of that what usually happens with these people is they're maybe held in one place for six months and then they move and they'll move because there's a huge online marketplace where they sell these people. Um, so there was a telegram channel that we had access to for a while where you could actually see this and, you know, ranges from, you know, so thousand low thousands to kind of tens of thousands of dollars for an individual, usually dependent on if they're good at the job, they can make a lot of money from scamming or to have potential for other things, like perhaps if they're an, an attractive woman, something like that, that can be moved into other areas of kind of forced work. So often these people are forced to sign contracts looked at like property by the stakes that they work in and are openly sold in essentially marketplaces. So they're treated like contractual property for sure. I was surprised to see... Uh, Pakistan come up in in all of this. How do people from Pakistan uh, end up being transported into these these systems and complexes? Again, it's because Pakistan's poverty situation is is so dire. It, it doesn't take as much to convince people to come abroad for for a job, and they've also got a really um, a really really prominent culture of going abroad to work and then you know sending money home. So it, it it's it's now extremely easy in twenty twenty three to set up Facebook accounts that will just target Pakistan males, probably mostly males if they're going to go work abroad on their own, and set it up to be like a, an IT job where all you need to do is be able to speak English and have basic computer literacy. And if you see that and then you offer an amount of money that isn't unbelievable, but is still good enough that you could send something home, a lot of people will take that. And then they'll pay for your flight um and then you just arrive and you're picked up in a in a minivan and that's 
that's you basically put into put into this. And the fact that there's a good chance you'll speak English is what they want from from Pakistan um, or any other language proficiencies you may have that would be in kind of more rich countries. Then you can be really really valuable to them. And we've well, seen one of some the things places especially... actually the Pakistan oh, former Pakistan military have been used as well as former Indian military to offer security inside the compounds as well. So knowing you know how to use a gun and be willing to work for a few hundred dollars a month, which might get you enough to send something home. One of the things that was especially harrowing to watch in that, that BBC documentary that I keep coming back to was the punishments that you've referenced, people being beaten, electric shock, things like that. And this was caught uh, uh, with some sort of covert, undercover uh, video reporting. Mm. And um, what, what kind of things would people be punished for in that method? Is this a, is this a case of not meeting targets, not not being willing to work? What, what are the reasons they'd be punished violently? It can change massively from different places. So there's some people I spoke to who are in forced work situations who are never beaten. Uh, they heard about it happening. Maybe they never actually seen it. Maybe it didn't happen to them. Um, but, you know, you're still not allowed your liberty. So it's still really, really difficult. Uh, and then other places, they'll beat you for the slightest thing, like not hitting your target that day. So you may get beaten or being a bit sarcastic to your guard or speaking to someone you shouldn't speak to. Maybe you're only allowed to speak to people directly in your team and you speak to another um, another department of, of kind of scamming networks. Um, and it can, yeah, or, or to the very worst ones, which are you trying to escape or you trying to contact the, the police or journalists to try and help you. How on earth are we, I mean, how on earth are we going to navigate this when AI is in full swing, where they can replicate a voice for in instance a likeness uh i mean these people falling for really obvious scams now these people falling for sophisticated scams mm. but at, at some point it's going to become completely indistinguishable from the real thing mm. how are we how are we best going to safeguard it against it i think with this particular type of crime it, it still takes up physical space so although it's online, you still need thousands and thousands of people to do it. You still need huge online servers to be able to have the capacity to, to run this many computers and, and with, a, with a decent internet speed. So there are clear physical places that we can go. And I could take you and say there's 6,000 slaves inside there um, doing very sophisticated AI-based scams. So there's still going to be that physical infrastructure that is there. Um, so I guess that's our only hope of being able to do something about it. Then you need willing governments in those countries to want to do something about it. And the the kind of one of the biggest issues is that China's got this enormous infrastructure project called the, the Belt and Road Initiative. And within that, they're giving out billions and billions around the world to build roads and bridges and, and, and railways, but also deep sea ports and build up strategic influence around the world and have roads that go from, you know, copper mines and, and so on all around all around the globe. These countries are being given unbelievable amounts of money and the Chinese government claims it has no strings attached. So when the European Union maybe offers you some cash and then you have a coup or you kill a dissident or a journalist, they might put sanctions on that. The Chinese government doesn't care. Uh, so they'll, they'll continue to give you that same funding. So as long as we've got a system in place where we're desperate enough and autocratic enough governments that are willing to take money um, without those strings attached, then they'll allow huge, huge uh, slavery operations and other types of really, really violent and damaging organized crime to, to happen in their countries. Yeah, I mean, that's an amazing point. I mean, given the 
the the way the CCP operates and its attitudes towards the flow of free information and journalists. How how difficult is it to get accurate information out of there when you're investigating something like this? It's really really difficult uh, to get uh, decent stuff from from inside China. Um, people are understandably really really scared. Um, I don't I don't speak the language as well, so we'll have to work with Chinese researchers. Um, but they also always keep you right and let you know areas that they don't want to go near or touch because they know it'll just come back to their families, even if, if they live abroad. So it's incredibly difficult because it is closed off. But the most challenging aspect is how understandably concerned for usually for their family safety, the, the, the people who would find this information are. For sure. And uh, is there anyone, I mean, you, you talk about people who are like uh, transporting from Myanmar, um, uh, Pakistan, you've mentioned Thailand, places like that. Do anyone, do, do people from the West ever fall victim of this sort of thing, to your knowledge? There's been a few. Um, in Cambodia, especially, uh, there was a few people who had, um, well, I think they'd overstayed their visa. I think they maybe committed a few crimes and got themselves into a bit of bother and their visa had overstayed and they needed money. And the Chinese casinos were like, well, you can come come use your English language skills in here, buddy, and you can make some money. Um, what has happened when those people have went in, whether it be, it's not happened often, but it's happened a few times, whether it's Brits or Americans, their governments tend to get them out quite quick. Um, so, you know, maybe it'll be a few weeks, a few months, but a lot quicker than any other nationality. So it shows that there is some capacity to get those people out if you really, really want it. Um, and it's not a look that... Western governments want is their citizens clearly held in some kind of slavery condition. Okay, well, this has been massively eye-opening. It's something I had no idea about until arranging to speak to you, and so I'm, I'm going to definitely read up and, and learn more about it. I'm very grateful for the work you're, you're doing on it. Um, can you point people towards where they can find more of your work or more, more information on this, or perhaps anything they can do to sort of get involved and, and help the situation? Yeah, um, I'm always posting about it. So if you follow me on Twitter, um, I think my Twitter's up in the chat there at, at Nathan P. Southern, or if you follow at Lindsay Kennedy, um, and you'll see kind of various different researchers and journalists that we work with. Uh, there's a great Cambodian journalist you should follow on Twitter called Mech Dara, M-E-C-H-D-A-R-A. -A. Um, he is the kind of most badass, ballsy journalist I've ever met. And We'll almost certainly have the Cambodian state coming in after him any day. So so check out his work and, you know, check out that BBC documentary that you said. We'll have more work coming out on it, um, more kind of detailed investigations and smaller articles as well. So if you follow my Twitter, you, 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 you'll see quite a lot of that coming. Well, Nathan, despite the incredibly heavy, harrowing uh, subject matter, I've, I've really enjoyed speaking to you about it and I appreciate the uh, the brave work you're, you're doing in this area. Thank you for coming on and speaking to us. Thank you very much, Stephen. Cheers. Take care. Wow, big issue. Um, something I need to learn more about for sure. But uh, that's about it for Atwood Unleashed this week. Uh, I have been informed on good authority that we will be returning for the full four-hour extravaganza next week. So make sure you join us there. And thank you very much for all your, your thoughtful questions and comments. They've been great. Until next time, have a good one.